It's been an interesting start to the 2023 baseball season, but what does it mean for fantasy baseball? I'll ask Glenn Colton about that and a whole lot more next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, April the 14th. It's show number 12 of the 2023 fantasy baseball season. I am Patrick Davitt, your host, and we do have another great Friday full edition for you. We'll have a two-part feature expert interview with Glenn Colton, the co-host of the Colton and the Wolfman show on Sirius XM Fantasy Sports Radio. In part one, we'll discuss early observations from the new season, including the parade of injuries. And in part two, Glenn and I will talk about in-season management using the SMART system, managing fast starts and slow starts, and some early buys and sells on surprising player performances. We'll also have our weekly fantasy news update with Chris Olson, playing time analyst at BaseballHQ.com, looking at American League hitter news including departures and arrivals in Texas, a disaster in Boston and a breakout in Tampa, We've got American League pitcher news, including some changes in Cleveland, notes from the Boston rotation, and an unfortunate stubbing in Detroit. For National League hitter news, we have a huge loss in Pittsburgh and a QBAB target in San Diego. And National League pitcher news includes more weird injury happenings for an unlucky right-hander in San Diego, a big loss in Milwaukee, and a welcome return in Atlanta. We'll also have our regular commentaries in the Minor League Minute. Baseball HQ scouting team member Rob Gordon looks at Mets infielder Brett Beatty and Detroit cornerman Justin Henry Malloy. In the frequent flyer, Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky looks at newly arrived Minnesota second baseman Edouard Julien. And in extra innings, I'll have my first trivia contest of the season, all about those 30-30 guys. It's another big Friday full edition. Thanks for joining us at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? we got to talk some baseball. And in the first inning of this Friday Full Edition, it's part one of our feature expert interview with Glenn Colton, co-host of the Colton and the Wolfman Show on Sirius XM Fantasy Sports Radio. Glenn, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Absolutely a pleasure. Thanks for having me back, Patrick. I'd like to start by finding out what uh, you've been doing as far as drafts and the season so far. So uh, how many drafts have you guys played so far this year and how many more do you think you have to come? So we've done, I've done uh, mostly with, you know, Rick Wolf uh, as my roto partner. I've got seven leagues uh, drafted that are season long, six that are play, you know, that are fab leagues and one draft and hold and probably did another 15 or 20 best ball leagues because we do a weekly uh, draft with our listeners over at Sirius XM Fantasy for our uh, you know, best ball over at RT Sports. I don't spend a lot of time looking at the best ball standings till about August or September. That's the beauty of best ball, but uh, playing out seven leagues actively. And I think I'm done with drafting baseball and just doing my weekly moves and staying up on all the news. You, you talk about best ball, and I heard you talking about this uh, last week, I think, on your show on Sirius XM. You were talking with uh, uh, somebody from RT Sports where your best ball contests are held, and you guys had a pretty interesting conversation, I thought, about the mindset of best ball and 
maybe you could quickly explain how best ball works, first of all, for those who don't know, and then second of all, how does the different structure of the game affect your draft choices and your draft planning? Sure, absolutely. Well, best ball basically is you draft one team, both uh, whatever the number of starters is that is required in the league, and, and a bench. And then there's no more moves to be made, no pickups, no trades, and no in-season management. And the computer will set at the end of the week, will figure out your optimal lineup from the players on your team. So the goal in best ball is to maximize each week, figuring out, okay, more upside players and players with multi-positions. Because obviously, if you can slot DJ LeMayu into one of three positions, then you can he has a good week. Now you have, uh, you know, you don't have to find one player at every position that had a good week because you can move him around or the Max Muncies of the world or the, you know, Isaac Paredes of the world. So that's sort of best ball. And what it really depends if you're playing a points league or a roto style league. But either way, my view of best ball is it's an opportunity to do something more fun than mock drafts, try different styles seats, different strategies, see how the market is reacting. And you still have some skin in the game and you're still interested as opposed to mock drafts where you get to around round 15 or 20 and people lose interest. They don't care anymore. Um, so I think it's a lot of fun and a fun way to play. And RT Sports uh, and Jeff Power, who you were referencing, who's always on our show, have really come up with some great overall contests, some uh, you know overall championships. So that particular league you were talking about, Patrick, has a uh, $10,000 grand prize. So you try some strategies to take a lot of risk, maximize weak positions to see if you can, you know, maybe climb the mountain there. I was thinking of exactly that when you guys were talking about it. Uh, although I don't remember it coming up in particular, but it seems like a, a format that would kind of encourage you to take a few more chances than you would in a in a, in a standard league where you're making moves week to week. And it seems counterintuitive because if you can make moves week to week, why wouldn't you embrace risk? The problem is, of course, that in the moves, you're competing with all the other guys in the league to get the replacement players that you might need if a risky player doesn't pan out. Whereas in this format, you can almost always count on, provided you have enough of those multi-eligible guys, you can always count on even if a risky guy falls out of the out of the race and can't even play anymore, for example, you still have the possibility of your DJ LeMahieu being able to fill in on any given week to replace your weakest performer. And if you have enough of those guys, then you can feel, I would suspect, you can feel a lot more confident that you're going to have scores from each slot on your roster, which is uh, probably pretty critical in this format. Oh, it, it absolutely is. And, you know, in that particular draft, I, I reached up and grabbed Jacob deGrom, which I've not done in any league where we're playing it out and making moves. But here's what happens in best ball. If Jacob deGrom, and I expect him to miss some time, though, you know, I'm rooting for him to stay healthy, like I root for everyone to stay healthy. But if he misses time, I don't have to figure out which starter has the best matchup or is going to have the best week, the computer is going to take the best start. So even if I'm making this up, Madison Bumgarner is going to Colorado. I'd never start him in an actively managed league, but if he has a good start in Colorado, the computer will do it for me. So I'm more likely to get my fill in right. 
Yeah, the only way you you can miss out is if all of your players don't perform that week. Uh, I've been in a best ball league, the Razlam League, for a couple of years now, and I've in that whole time I've had one week where all my pitchers were minus scores, and therefore I got the minus score for the week, which really uh, was too bad. But that's uh, my own fault for drafting too many risky guys, I suppose. In all of those drafts that you have, uh, Glenn, which hitters have you the most often? Which hitters are the most common to your many teams? So, um, Glaber Torres, uh, yes, I'm a Yankee fan, but we'll talk about him. He's one of the guys I have a ton of. Christian Walker on the hitting side, Matt Vierling, Alec Bohm, Matt Chapman, and Trent Grisham. Those are guys we have all over the place. Well, Chapman's off to a terrific start. And I saw at baseballhq.com today, um, I think Ryan Bloomfield's speculator column was looking at uh, players who have had really good starts using the QBAB uh, metric that was invented at the site, I think by Eric Florimonti, and it's a measure of quality at bats, basically. And uh, Matt Veerling is uh, one of the guys, or I'm sorry, Trent Grisham is one of the guys who has pretty close to a perfect score in that regard. So uh, has Trent Grisham been doing well for you? Oh, yeah, he's been doing very well. And look, this is a guy who's still only 26 years old. And, the, and this is one of my big theories. Um, originally got it from, you know, John Benson years and years ago. It's not so much the age 26, but it's players who come up young. And you look at this list, Glaber Torres and, and, you know, Alec Bohm and, and Trent Grisham. These are guys where the expectations were just too great. And then their value is reduced at an age when they're really only supposed to start hitting their full stride. So you tend to be able to get value. I mean, Glaber Torres, I mean, I was, I know I followed him uh, from the day they got him from the Cubs for a role as Chapman, but today he's still only 26 years old and came into the season with 2,400 plate appearances. 2,400 plate appearances when a lot of guys who are 26 have 400 plate appearances. So the, the fact that he would mature and grow into that talent is not really surprising to me. No, especially as he was a, a fairly highly regarded prospect when the tra- that trade was made, the Aroldis Chapman trade. I did a research project for Baseball HQ years ago, Glenn, looking at when do these young players start to come to fruition for fantasy purposes. And what I found was you wanted to draft the guy in the year after he achieved 1,200 plate appearances, regardless of age. It had nothing to do with age, as it turns out. What you wanted was experience. And I think what I've what I realized from that is the age 26 benchmark is not really a benchmark for any kind of physical maturity or anything like that, although that probably plays into it. But that's the age at which most guys get to their 1200th plate appearance because they don't start that young. They start at 24 usually if they're coming into the, into the major leagues, unless they're really top quality prospects like a Glaber Torres, he gets to the 1200 plate appearances at a much younger age and therefore is at his peak at a younger age than other guys would be. And I think that's something that, that we need to keep in mind that guys who start young, they start young for a reason is because some organization somewhere thought, Hey, this guy can play and, and this guy can be a benefit to us. And the Yankees in their wisdom, I think realized that about Glaber Torres uh, early on, although in the last year or two, there's been a lot of talk that they might be looking to trade him, that they're running out of patience with him. Uh, I guess based on this year's start, uh, we can put those rumors to rest. Boy, I hope so. I mean, the notion that you would move a 26-year-old Glaber Torres to make give any at-bats to a 
fading 36-year-old Josh Donaldson in the last year of a bad contract. As a Yankee fan, that just makes me a little queasy. And it probably isn't uh, so much the case that uh, they would trade Torres for a 36-year-old guy, but I think I could see them making Torres the centerpiece of a trade to acquire you know, a, a really top flight pitcher for the stretch or something like that. I can't see it now, but I could have seen it maybe in years past when he was struggling a little bit uh, as they moved him around defensively. I think that had something to do with it. I uh, agree. Which pitchers, Glenn, are most common to your many teams? So I have a lot of Jesus Lazardo, a lot of Patrick Sandoval, uh, a lot of Kyle Gibson because he was so inexpensive, and uh, a lot of Luis Severino. Jury's going to be out on that one. And a lot of Aroldis Chapman. I, I continue to be amazed at how inexpensive he was in not only AL only leagues, but 15 team mixed leagues. Aroldis Chapman's an interesting uh, case study because there's a chance, a, a non zero chance, that the reason Kansas City uh, picked him up as a free agent in this offseason is because they have every intention of flipping him at the deadline to somebody else. And I know that the common wisdom is anytime a closer or a proto-closer gets flipped to a contender, it's to be a setup man because chances are the, the contender already has a closer. But nowadays, I don't know if that's as sure. And there's a, I think there's a non-zero chance that our oldest Chapman gets flipped at the deadline and becomes the closer on a good team. And if that's the case, of course, you're, you're sitting there with your $2 our oldest Chapman and uh, you're grinning. Well, that was, ab- that was absolutely the theory as to not only why he might end up in August and September with a contender if his arm is back, which it does seem to be, but also that Kansas City would give him a chance to close to increase his market value. Uh, He's throwing well over 100 again. Looks like that slider is working. And remember, Aroldis Chapman has already seen the movie of being traded to a contender to be the closer uh, when he helped bring the Cubs there, you know, break the curse, the championship. Uh, after 108 years. So, and by the way, there are plenty of contenders that need really good back end arms. And I have no inside information here, but would it shock you to see him pitching for Stevie Cohen and the Mets? No, actually, that's a pretty interesting possibility. And it certainly would get the back pages of the New York uh, tabloids interested. Uh, I'm, I'm also interested in Kyle Gibson. What did you see in Kyle Gibson coming into the year that made you want to have him on so many rosters? So Kyle Gibson is a guy who's going to give you a lot of innings. He's going to keep the ball on the ground. And he, when he went from Texas, good park to pitch in, to Philadelphia, terrible park to pitch in, it was no surprise that new team, new park, bad sort of situation for a, uh, a pitcher that he didn't do that well in Philadelphia. Then he goes to Baltimore where he's, they need him. He's going to be their number one starter at the start of the year in a park that's good to pitch in. Um, now that they changed, uh, you know, the fences. And I thought, here's a guy who's going to go out there and he's going to give you 180 innings. The ratios are going to be palatable. He's going to win enough games and he's completely inexpensive in fantasy. So happy to have him, you know, as my fourth or fifth starter, which I do in a lot of teams. 
344 ERA so far this year in a 115 whip. And, of course, you must be chortling to yourself at those kind of numbers. And 3-0 and uh, win-loss record. The three wins are super valuable as well. But there are a lot of warning signs here too as well, Glenn. Uh, the, uh, the hit rate is uh, very low at 227% or 270 BABIP. Uh, 74% strand rate, which is a little high for his career level, about 70%. So he seems to be giving up a few less hits than he should be in and of fewer of them are coming around to score than probably should be as expected ERA is over four. At some point, uh, how closely are you watching Kyle Gibson for signs that the ship has taken on water? So, you know, it's sort of a week to week thing and it depends on your format in you know, labor or tout wars, which are AL only, he's pretty much, he's in it and you set it and forget it until you see really terrible warning signs. In a 12-team or 15-team mixed league, you sort of watch the matchups every week. You know, he's going to pitch at Yankee Stadium and then in Toronto, well, yeah, maybe maybe he'll pass on that one. But largely, I'm not all that concerned. And the truth of the matter is, at 3-0 and with solid ratios right now, He's only about a month away from turning a huge profit, even if we end up cutting him on June 1st. Yeah, that's the thing about pitching like this. And how cognizant of you or how deeply do you keep track of the pitch mix changes, the pitch shape changes, all of the stuff with driveline and those kind of uh, pitching labs? in the off season that contribute to pitchers who ordinarily you wouldn't have given a second thought to all of a sudden we have to start thinking about some of those pitchers because they make such huge changes in how they're approaching what they're doing on the field. And is Kyle Gibson, one of those guys, did he, did he change anything real dramatically in his pitch mix or anything like that? So that with Gibson, it wasn't, that wasn't what I was looking at. I was looking at, you know, going back to a comfortable ballpark, going back to a comfortable situation and a guy with a real track record of, of production, um, not all-star production, but production you need in fantasy at the back end of your rotation. I don't so much look in the offseason at new pitches, but at look at this, the way in which these guys' pitches perform, right? You take a look and you say, boy, if he just, for example, in the Zach Eflin situation, I know he got hurt. He goes to Tampa where they're very good at taking advantage of the best that a player has to offer. Fastball not very good. Curveball really good. Okay. They're going to figure out he throws more curveballs. He's going to be a lot better. It's that kind of thing that you look at. If a pitcher just changes his pitch mix to throw his better pitches more often, that they're likely to take a step up. And I look at that very closely. Any other pitchers uh, like that for you this year? You know, there, there were actually a few out there. I'm trying to remember and one of them, you know, is Sandoval, right? Who has that just absolutely just terrific changeup, right? So you got to throw that a little bit more and you pair it, you know, with other pitches that sort of make it look even more different out of the hand. And there's still another level. That was an example because the pitch is so good. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick David with Glenn Colton from the Colton and the Wolfman Show at Sirius XM Fantasy Sports Radio. And uh, Glenn, as the season was getting ready to start, what were you interested to take a look at and see what was going what was going to happen? So it's two things, you know, Patrick. Obviously, it's a lot of talk about the running game with the pitch clock and the new bases and the limited pickoff moves and things 
of that nature. So that was really one of the big things. And the other one is the effect on potential pitcher tiring and injuries from having to sort of work harder. Yes, I know these are professional athletes, but you know, when you have to exert max effort every 40 seconds versus any every 20 seconds, that's a huge difference. And we have no real data on older players. You know, the younger players have been doing this in the minor leagues, but the older players really wanted to see, are we going to see a lot more pitching injuries? And I fear that we have and will. So we've got 300 or so games under the belt so far this year, about 8% of the season so far. What do you think based on what you expected versus what you've seen so far? Largely what I expected has come to pass on the good side. There's more, there's more stolen bases, the games, you know, that's exciting. It's fun to watch. Um, and unfortunately there are more, it feels like, and maybe it feels this way every year, Patrick, but it feels like there are more injuries. I mean, just yesterday, you know, you, you hear, okay, you know, uh, unfortunately Brandon Woodruff is going on the, the IL and, um, Zach Eflin is going on the IL, and the day before it was Aaron Savale going on the IL. So you sort of feel like more pitching injuries are actually happening. Yeah, it would be worth looking at this time last year or in the last few years to see if that's the case. Uh, when you were talking about this with Rick and your other guests on your SiriusXM show last Tuesday, you somebody raised an interesting point about the emotional load and the shortened time that pitchers have to recover from a bad umpire's call or an error in the field or, you know, some kind of thing that kind of throws them off their, off their mental or emotional stability. And they need a little bit of extra time to maybe gather themselves and get ready to get back to work. And if you have to do your next pitch in 15 seconds or 20 seconds, maybe you don't have enough time. And what did you guys think about that when you were talking about it? Well, I'm trying to remember the conversation, candidly, Patrick, but I think it was basic human nature, right? I mean, you don't have time to step off the mound, go, you know, get the rosin bag, shake the cobwebs, etc. I mean, the rules have been moving and moving. It used to be a few years ago, you know, whoever the most veteran infielder was would come over, uh, chat with you, put his arm around you, go back. You can't do that because there are mound visit limitations. And now there's pitch clock limitations. So I think, you know, players just have to get into a different mindset of shake it off and keep going. The great relievers, you know, the, the Mariano Rivera's of the world, it doesn't matter what went right or what went wrong. His mindset was the same on the next pitch or the next game. And that's something I think players will have to do. And I think managers will be saving their mound visits for later in the game so that they can actually take the air out of the ball and give pitchers a little bit of a break to reset. Um, if you use up your mound visits early, you're not going to be able to do that. Yeah, when you mentioned Mariano Rivera, I remember thinking when he was when he was pitching, and this is not an original thought, certainly, but if you were brought into a room with a TV and Mariano Rivera was pitching and they showed you a close-up of him on the mound, just his face, you would have no idea whether he had just struck out the side or whether he had given up three straight home runs. It's a really good skill emotionally for any pitcher or any athlete really to have to not wear your heart on your sleeve. Yeah, no, look, I completely agree with you. I like to see fiery players, but you don't necessarily want to see that with one out. 
bases loaded, you get a strikeout with two outs. Yeah, go ahead. Celebrate, run off the field. That's totally fine. But when you're on the mound pitch to pitch, you've got a really difficult job to do and you just have to focus. In that discussion you were having on SiriusXM, you also had a suggestion to maybe help maintain the drama in the later parts of close games. What was your idea? Yeah, I, I mean, I really like the rules that are making the game go faster, but I think that in the ninth inning, in a game that is separated by four runs or less, the pitch clock should be removed and the game should go back to sort of building the tension. One, because I think the games are going fast enough that it's not a problem. Two, because I just don't want to see a game end on a pitch clock violation or a, a batter failure to get into the box fast enough. That's not how games should end. And it's very common in professional sports. The NFL, you know, the king of sports these days, if you will. The rules with the last two minutes are completely different. Um, even in the NFL, you know, the clock doesn't stop when you go out of bounds in the first 10 minutes of uh, you know, the first next 25 minutes of a half, but the last five, it, it does. So the fact that there would be sort of a little more stretching out the good part and the exciting part of the game, I'm all for it. I actually have never understood why the NFL did that thing about the uh, going out of bounds. I think they stopped the clock long enough to move the chains like in college and then, then they move forward, right? But yeah, I, I never understood why they did that except to make the game go faster and this is something I'm kind of of two minds about in any sport when I'm watching it. If I'm enjoying the game, I don't want it to go faster. You know, if I'm watching a really good football game, I don't want another 20 seconds to run off the clock with nothing happening because the guy went out of bounds, but it didn't count basically like it used to. I I think that if the game has to run 305 to get another 10 football plays in, I'm all for it. Yeah, look, I agree with you, but I also think Baseball is a little bit different in the sense there are 162 games. It's every single day. And the games were too long. There's no need to step out of the batter's box, redo your, your batting gloves, redo your protective equipment on sensitive areas, all that kind of thing. You know what? Step in and, and get it moving. I really like that. And I always hated the lob throw to first base. The just sort of, you know, not, no more of that. If somebody's going to throw a pickoff, mean it or don't do it. And I like those rules. I'm with you, actually. I, I think it, maybe it is different in baseball, and it's. I don't think it's because I watch a lot of baseball. I do watch a lot of baseball, but and as I said before, if the game runs on a little longer than usual, good. I like baseball, so I like watching baseball, uh, and if you're going to give me 10 more minutes of it, I'll take it. But it is, I don't even think it was the length of the game. I think it was the pace of the game that was affected by the this constant backing out or or throwing over and just delaying things for the sake it seemed of delaying them to try to to try to not have to to do something in the moment and if they can do now that they've done something to get rid of a lot of that nonsense uh, like you said I'm all for it as well you and Rick also discussed the growth of stolen bases and of course we were expecting that with all the rules that have been put into place to encourage running but I don't know that anybody expected what we've seen so far we've had uh, 216 stolen bases 49 caught stealings in the first 310 games that's an 82 percent success rate and a 3400 stolen base pace for the year which would be a thousand more stolen bases than there were last year 
And then you said something really interesting about how the many extra stolen bases so far have been distributed, especially on a team-by-team basis. What was it that caught your eye? So I think, you, I mean, just anecdotally, you see Baltimore run all over Boston in the first, you know, weekend, I think, of the season. And I think Baltimore is going to run. They have the rabbits to be able to run. But you also start to see which teams defensively, either the catchers or the pitchers, haven't really adjusted to the new reality. I think it's going to shift back. Do I think the Red Sox are going to give up six stolen bases a game for the season? You know, of course not. Um, I do think there's going to be an overreaction, though, Patrick, of some catchers who are giving up a lot of stolen bases will lose playing time. And I think as fantasy managers, we have to figure out who that's going to be because your catcher sitting on the bench is not giving you fantasy stats. I'm kind of curious why the Minnesota Twins have one stolen base so far this year and Cleveland has 19 and Cleveland's doing something right. And I think Minnesota might be doing something wrong. And and it's not that Minnesota lacks for guys who could steal bases. I just wonder if they're being stubborn or what do you think about the teams at the bottom of the table? There's teams with one, two, maybe three stolen bases. There's eight teams with three or less. Why aren't they getting on the bandwagon? So look, I think, you know, when you mentioned Cleveland, they are built to, to, to put the ball in play, to run. I mean, guys like Stephen Kwan and, you know, and Miles Straw and Will Brennan, you know, and even Jimenez and Rosario. I mean, the team is built to play sort of old school baseball like that. So it's no great surprise that they're running. And with Minnesota, you're leading off Byron Buxton, who you're, you're at DH. Your whole goal with that is to make sure he doesn't get hurt as best as you can. So I don't see them giving him the green light. And then you've got other players. They've had a lot of injuries. Max Kepler is hurt. Joey Gallo is hurt. Jorge Polanco is hurt. You know, so I think they're just really worried about players getting hurt. And that's sort of a different approach there. Um, I think it will move to the center. Cleveland will continue to run. But as the season goes on, Minnesota will run more. Do you think, though, that they'll ever catch up with the pace that's being set by Cleveland and Arizona and Baltimore? So, no, I mean, I don't just based on how the team is built. I mean, you're not going to get a lot of stolen bases from the Gallows and from the Keplers and from, you know, Alex Kirilov when he comes back and Jorge Polanco with a bad knee issue. Uh, and Carlos Correa is a guy who rarely ever stole any bases to begin with. And Jose Miranda is not going to steal a lot of bases. They're just not built to run like that. I've had Max Kepler on my teams a time or two before. I remember he's usually good for a few stolen bases. Yeah, a few, but, you know, he's not going to steal 20 bases or 25 bases. Like, you know, you're going to get from Quan and Rosario right. and Jimenez and, you know, maybe Brennan if he played full time. I think his peak was 10 now that I think about it. It was a couple of years ago and everybody thought, oh, here's Max Kepler discovering some new path to value for fantasy and then uh, went right back to two or three again. So maybe <laughs> I was just misremembering that whole thing. So now we have a situation, Rick, for fantasy managers all over the place and we all had our guesses and we all had our suppositions about how this stolen base thing was going to play out. Now we've had a chance to look at it and there is this bifurcation in the teams. There's a, There's... Uh, bifurcation amongst the players. There's a lot of players with five, six stolen bases and a lot of players still with zero and, and one, just like in the past. Is it 
starting to look like the the split is going to be the rabbits are going to run more and everybody else is going to run about the same? Yeah, I actually don't see it. That I think the rabbits will run more, but I think the smart base runners will do better, right? The guys who you never really understood how they stole a lot of bases, the Anthony Rizzo's, the Aaron Judges, you know, the guys who aren't really fast, and they're going to start to really figure out from watching the tape and watching the videos of, okay, the pitcher's down to three, four seconds left on the clock. He can't throw over. You know, the, the sort of getting the timing, it used to be that you just had to watch the pitchers move and you'd start to figure out when they were going to the plate. Now you've got an extra thing. You can see when they can't throw over on you. Um, and I think you're going to see the smart base runners steal more bases as they have more tape to study. Did you happen to see the article the other day? It was either in the New York Times or the Athletic, I think, or the New York Times via the Athletic. I was going to say that, yeah. And it had to do with some guy, kind of like the Aaron Judge batting coach, the guy that nobody ever heard of, owns a billiard parlor in Kansas City or something, and he retooled Aaron Judge's swing, and that's where all of Aaron Judge's success came from. Now we've got a guy, he was like a D2 college baseball coach, and he figured out a new way to start your move towards second if you're planning on stealing a base. And a lot of players are starting to pick up on it. It has to do with kind of a, a hop step towards second as you as you are leaving. So you get that split second more forward momentum. And there's a lot of players who are picking up on it. Are we on the verge, do you think, of some kind of coaching or lab-based breakthrough that's going to really magnify the effect of the rules changes as far as stolen base numbers? So it's really interesting. I did not see the article, though I will go look for it now. But I did notice in watching Yankee games that that's exactly what Anthony Volpe has been doing. Volpe was one of the guys who got mentioned in the story, yep. I mean, I picked that up just, you know, with my eyes watching him do that. But I also thought to myself that, yeah, fine, this, you know, young kid is going to have a much more sort of forceful dive back into first base when he when he's hopping and has to go back the other way. I don't know that I see the Yankees wanting to see Stanton or Judge doing that or, you know, some of the other, you know, older players. Uh, not that Judge is so old, but, you know, guys that you really want to keep healthy. I'm not so sure the teams are going to want their players doing that. The rabbits, that I see. As I recall the article, the the hop step wasn't a maybe I'll go, maybe I won't. It's once you were committed to going to second that this was how you started that process. And it, it, because they are exactly worried about what you said. And something else you just said makes me think that there's some added value in the technique is that if there's two seconds left on the pitch clock, he can't throw to first. And so all you're doing is trying to maximize your jump, and this was a way to maximize the jump. I thought it was pretty interesting. But in the meantime, just in general, how do you think fantasy owners have to manage what looks like an evolving stolen base situation that may get more and more clarity as we move forward into the season? I think it's a lot like the 2019 happy fun ball when you were managing home runs. It's, it's a mistake to think, oh, you know, there were plenty of home runs out there in 2019, so I don't have to worry about it. In 2023, we can't say there's going to be plenty of stolen bases out there. I don't have to worry about it because the number of stolen bases you thought you needed when you were drafting your team is going to be too low. So you need more stolen bases because everybody's going to have more stolen bases, and you're going to need to focus on that 
especially if you drafted a team that is, you know, that was short on, on stolen bases in your projections at the start of the year. You can't draft a team that hits every single target. It doesn't work. You, you've made some, you know, some accommodations. You might be low in power, saves, whatever it is. If you're low in steals, I'd address it earlier rather than later. In your SiriusXM show, you also had an interesting observation about how the bigger bases might be affecting the catchers, especially when they throw down to second base. Uh, what was that observation and how does it affect how we should be looking at our fantasy catchers? Well, you know, I have to give all credit in the world on that one to uh, my SiriusXM colleague, Cody Decker, who actually did play in the major leagues and, and have to deal with this. But what he was saying, and I think it makes perfect sense, is catchers drill and drill and drill on tunneling the ball into one particular most efficient spot for their infielder to be able to just catch the ball and put the glove down. That spot is now in a different place. And that's a really big difference for precise athletes. If I went out on the field and threw from home plate to second base, the difference wouldn't matter. But I haven't thrown down to second a thousand, ten thousand times. And now you're asking catchers to throw the ball into a different spot to efficiently nail base runners. And that is a challenge. And it doesn't seem like the kind of thing, obviously you can tell them that they have to do that and you can start drilling and drilling. But as you said, you're trying to overcome maybe 10, 20,000 repetitions doing thing A. And all of a sudden you say, okay, you guys, thing A is no longer applicable. Let's all start doing thing B and, and let's start drilling. And if, if you're the catcher, you think, well, okay, give me 10,000 reps and I'll, I'll, I'm sure I'll nail it down. And it seems like it's likely to further increase or further augment the rules changes insofar as uh, allowing more stolen bases. And I think the stolen base count, I said earlier, it's going to be a thousand more than it was last year. I think as more and more teams start catching on to how easy it is for the for anybody with a modicum of speed and base running sense to steal second, if the, the league 82% average is seven points above the break-even point, everybody's going to realize that sooner or later. And all of a sudden they're going to say, well, the run matrix tells me I got to do more of this. And I think we're going to see a ton more of them for sure. I wouldn't be surprised if we see somebody this year with 80 stolen bases, for instance, an individual player, or maybe several, but we'll see. Uh, you were drafting one of your best ball teams while you guys were on the air, which was pretty interesting. And you were changing strategic horses in the middle of the stream by going pitcher, pitcher. You were pretty close to the wheel at, at uh, round two, three, how do you know when to switch to plan B, even when you're pretty confident plan A is working okay? So this is where the best ball concept is different than the season long, you know, in a season long competition, tout wars, labor, NFBC, have a plan. I've worked hard to make the plan unless there's a dramatic happening in the draft room. I'm keeping the plan. But with these best ball leagues, you get to sort of experiment. You get to sort of do things that you don't ordinarily do. So some of the there are a few great fantasy baseball players out there. Um, you know, Jason Gray, who doesn't play anymore because he's with the Rays, the late great Laura Michaels. They could just sit there and take the draft as it came to them and pivot and pivot. And I've never been good at that. So I've always wanted to be better at that. So I try it in the best ball leagues where, you know, it's more of an experimental thing for me, more of a laboratory for me. I've always been terrible at that. I do it all the time in my drafts and I always berate myself afterwards 
because it's it's not sufficiently thought out. I'm a fairly organized guy in drafts and and I have a plan and then I abandon the plan because I think Christian Javier for only $22, I've got to bid on Christian Javier at $22, even though my budget simply can't stand Christian Javier at $22 at that point, but I do it anyway. And, and as I said, I berate myself uh, ferociously after that. Uh, uh, what else have you seen so far this season that has interested you from the fantasy perspective? Overreactions. It's, I mean, yes, with the injuries we talked about in the, in the stolen bases, but the overreactions to either great outings or bad outings. I mean, the number of tweets and articles about Corbin Burns is a bust. People took him in the first round. People paid 30-something dollars in auctions. And then, of course, he goes out and he has a great outing last time out. The overreaction theater, as I like to call it, has been oversold this year. If people, it is a long season. One outing doesn't mean a pitcher's lost it. You know, an 0 for 10 start doesn't mean a hitter can't hit. You did homework for months to evaluate these players. Don't give it up in a week. Well, talking of injuries, of course, the injuries have been a big story so far. Some really big names went on the IL before opening day. Some more went shortly after. How have your teams fared in the injury blitz? Like everybody else, I've got my share, right? I've got a team where Brandon Woodruff is the ace. I've got a team where Max Fried is the ace in an NL only. I mean, there's sort of no avoiding some of this. Uh, I have Luis Severino in a lot of places because I thought he was undervalued. Um, so yeah, I've been hit like everyone else, but I, I don't sit there and say, oh my goodness, I've got, you know, knock on wood worse than anyone else. I think it's, I've got my fair share. I have too, but uh, it seems to be misdistributed or maldistributed. Uh, in one league, I drafted Edwin Diaz, Tristan McKenzie, and Reese Hoskins in the first eight rounds, and they didn't even get out onto uh, as far as opening day. I think maybe McKenzie threw a couple of innings. Lots of fantasy managers, of course, can make similar claims, as you say, Verlander, Altuve, Bader, Rodon, Iglesias, they're falling like 10 pins, but what are managers to do, if anything? Look, I mean, before the season you should avoid paying full value for injury prone players because then you've sort of accepted the risk that that will happen. And so you know other injuries that you have no way to know are going to happen are going to happen. So you really have to get discounts when you, you know, acquire injury prone players. That's what to do before the season. During the season, you have to be vigilant about looking about, you know, which player looks to have a new role, which player looks to be coming up from the minor leagues and bid a week early, you know, get them a week early. Uh, it's for you and I play in tout wars and we're allowed to pick up minor leaguers and fab. You know what? Go get those guys who can be difference makers, especially when you lose some of the dis- difference makers on your roster. I've been hearing a lot of fantasy experts talking about this issue, Glenn, and they talk about the strain that gets put on league formats where there's limited or no IL and there's limited bench space. NFBC is the classic example. You've got seven spots. There's no separate IL. So if you've got four injuries, especially longer-term injuries, it really puts you on the spot because you have to decide, am I going to cut O'Neill Cruz because I don't expect him back until August? Or am I going to hang on to him until August and do without the the bench spot? I'm wondering, given the ever-increasing number of injuries in baseball, do you think there's a role for leagues to start thinking about amending their roster rules in this regard? A hundred percent. I mean, my 
view is you want to take out as much luck as you possibly can from who's going to be the winning and losing team. Injuries are going to happen. Most injuries are not your fault. You know, you draft Eli Jimenez and he gets hurt. Well, you should have known that that was a possibility and valued it in. But I want to take the luck out. So I'm a firm believer in unlimited IL spots. Absolutely. If, and, and that should be the rule. And I'm also a firm believer in what we do in tout wars, which is when a player gets hurt on midweek in a weekly transaction league, that you can replace that player from your bench. It is easily enforceable. It's when they hit the actual major league IL is the only time you can make that move. And I think all leagues should put that into place. It's not going to make it like a daily moves league where you have to be so on top of who's in batting order and where. This is just if you get an injury on a Tuesday to a Brandon Woodruff, you can replace him. And it eliminates a little bit of the luck. Obviously, the pitcher you put in for Woodruff will not be Woodruff, but at least it's somebody who could be productive. Yeah, you get some innings, maybe a chance at a win, some strikeouts. That's for sure. When I started playing rotisserie baseball in an American League only league, our rule was, and I think this was the way that the founders envisioned it, was we had unlimited IL, but no reserve. Everybody on your roster had to be active, and that created a bit more of a pool for replacement players if somebody did get hurt or if uh, you wanted to make a change on your roster, as opposed to what we have in Tout, for instance, we have four reserve players apiece. That's another 48 players out of an already pretty skimpy pool, especially as far as hitters go. What do you think of that kind of rule where we get rid of some of the reserve slots and but do allow unlimited IL? Yeah, I like the reserve slots. I mean, look, I'm all for innovation or going back to different ways to try to play, but I really like the reserve spots where, you know, you could delve deeply into the player pool. You have a hunch about a, a particular player that nobody is focused on and you could stash them on your reserve. I, I really like that. To be clear, the league that I was playing in also had a farm roster, but it had to be only minor leaguers. And once they were, I think once they were qualified, as uh, by innings minimums or by at-bat minimums, then uh, you, you had to activate them or lose them. But the farm roster, because it was a keeper league, was a whole separate thing that you had fun managing, and that was pretty good as well. Uh, boy, Glenn, this has been interesting so far, as I expected it would be. Let's take a quick break, and we'll finish our discussion a little later after the news. All right, look forward to it. Glenn Colton co-hosts the Colton and the Wolfman show on Sirius XM Fantasy Sports Radio. He'll be back a little later in the show to talk about in-season management using the smart system, managing fast and slow starts, and some early buys and sells on surprising player performances. And coming up next, we have our Market Watch Player News Reports with Chris Olson from Baseball HQ. But right now, it's time in the show when I get to let you know about some of the great content and tools that let us say BaseballHQ.com is the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In Playing Time Tomorrow Roster Forecasting, analyst Brian Rudd looks at the five teams in the American League Central, including potential changes in the struggling White Sox rotation, potential changes in the underperforming Cleveland outfield, and potential changes in the woeful Detroit bullpen. Playing Time Tomorrow Roster Forecasting, just another great resource at BaseballHQ.com. Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our weekly Market Watch news review and update. And here with the latest is Chris Olson, team playing time analyst at BaseballHQ.com. Chris, welcome to the show. 
Yeah, no problem, PD. Happy to be back, even if it is to discuss just a uh, crazy string of injuries. A crazy string of injuries is right. So many of them, in fact, it's kind of hard to know where to start, but we got some news out of Texas just uh, last night or the night before that has two different sets of ramifications. The Rangers put shortstop Corey Seager on the 10-day IL. He's got a grade two hamstring strain, going to miss at least four weeks. They activated outfielder Leody Tavares from the IL to replace Seager on the roster. Rod Trusdell covering all of this for playing time today at BaseballHQ.com. There's a lot to unpack here, Chris. Uh, first, who gets Seager's playing time? Well, first, I mean, and we'll get to it, I'm, I suppose, Patrick, but uh, there may not be any uh, more dangerous job in the in the country right now than being a uh, major league shortstop, it seems. But we'll get to some of the other ones. Amen. Uh, but, but to... Uh, uh, to cover for Seager, you know, the, Texas uh, has been playing Josh Smith uh, elsewhere in the outfield, but uh, he'll be uh, moving to shortstop while Seager is out. Um, they also have another youngster, Ezekiel Duran, who will probably see some time against left-handed pitchers. Um, Smith batted second in uh, Seager's spot on Wednesday. And, uh, you know, Smith is sort of interesting. He, he uh, is a patient hitter. He had a 15% walk rate um, so far this year. Uh, you know, OBP, you know, in a very small sample, 435. So he's getting on base. Um, he runs pretty well. Doesn't have much power, at least at this stage of his career um but you know he's hitting uh you know at least against that first right-handed pitcher he hit high up in the order so uh you know we're, we're pretty much interested when uh someone's going to get that many plate appearances and be in a position to score uh, a fair number of runs as long as he keeps getting on base he could be a batting average help, I think, too, and a on-base percentage if you play in one of those leagues. Could throw in a few bags. I think the key is going to be, if he's going to produce value, he's going to have to stay in that number two slot because the Texas lineup is fairly weak as you get past the uh, five, six kind of guys and you get down in seven, eight, nine. There's not a lot of production going to come out of those slots, I think, because they're just not going to turn the lineup over often enough. Yeah, no, I think I think you're right about that. Um, but uh, you know, at least as of the moment, uh, Texas seems to be looking at him as, uh, and, and you know, like I said, small sample, but rightfully so, as as a guy that uh, can be a table setter for um, their remaining big bats. So, uh, you know, your uh, Nathan Lowe's and your uh, Adoles Garcias. So. Um, you know, I think, uh, you know, you're right. I mean, it, it is key to that lineup spot, but, you know, it doesn't look like there are any huge threats to it uh, at this point. Well, that's for sure. Ray and I discussed at length the muddled outfield situation that sprang up when Tavares went on to the IL at back around opening day. Bubba Thompson at the time seemed like the heir apparent, but he didn't turn out to be. He was supplanted by Smith first, and Ezekiel Duran got some reps, and even Travis Jankowski, whom they called up after the fact. Now Tavares is back in the saddle, so what happens with all the Rangers in the outfield? Well, I mean, I, I think, you know, we, we care because, you know, between Tavares and, and uh, as you guys talked about, uh, Bubba Thompson, you know, we're, we're all uh, scrounging for every stolen base we can find, and those are a couple guys with some some good speed skills. But I, the short answer is obviously that Tavares is going to probably uh, you know slot right back into being the starting center fielder here. Um, you know, he's to your point earlier about Josh Smith. Um, he's down in the lineup, batting eighth, uh, but nonetheless, that that 
you know, sometimes get you a little bit more of a green light uh, when you do go on base. Um, Thompson and Jankowski are still around. Like you say, you know, it's uh, interesting to see, uh, you know, between uh, with, with Jankowski sort of finding a place where he can sort of try to uh, revive uh, his career or, or get it going. Um, so, they'll, you know, they'll still see some time, um, an occasional start. Maybe they'll come in for defense late in games. Uh, pinch run, pinch hit, um, and so forth. Uh, but Tavares is the guy to be interested in from this group. Um, and, and as I was saying earlier, you know, uh, 10 steals and 330 plate appearances last year. And, and our speed metric shows that, um, you know, that's not really a fluke. He's got uh, got the goods in terms of the raw skill to, uh, to back up that stolen base potential. I was benefiting in two leagues from the hot start by Boston outfielder Adam Duval, 455 batting average, 514 on base, 1030 slugging, uh, which is amazing, 1544 OPS. He had four home runs, 14 RBIs. It was a great start in his first 37 plate appearances, and nobody's going to try to convince anybody that he was going to hit 455 for the year or OPS 1544 for that matter, but he was off to a good start, and he has been a very productive fantasy player in the past. But he broke his left wrist. So now let's start there. You covered this story for playing time today. Uh, you covered this for playing time tomorrow, I believe, as well. Boston certainly seems to have plenty of options to replace Duval, but none of them seems likely to replace Duval's production. Yeah, I mean, your your word "options" there is doing a lot of work in uh, in that sentence. Um, they have a lot of. Uh, different, uh, you know, ideas, whether any of them are particularly good, uh, remains to be seen. Like you say, Dahlbeck is on the roster, but he, he's pretty much on the roster, um, primarily because, uh, Red Sox just had a very unusual, and they're still in the middle of it, actually, uh, Jeffrey Spring, as we're recording this, uh, they're facing Jeffrey Springs, which is, uh, part of a stretch where they're, um, you know, facing seven left-handers in the stretch of eight games or something like that. And uh, so Dahlbeck brings, you know, that other right-handed bat. Now, Dahlbeck, uh, you know, we, we all raised a little bit of an eyebrow when Dahlbeck, who we, we sort of uh, think of as a first baseman, was taking some grounders at short uh, during spring training. But he's an athletic guy and, uh, you know, didn't embarrass himself out there. And, uh, you know, apparently that's sort of one of the uh, myriad different uh, options that the Red Sox are exploring, you know, having uh, Dahlbeck play short and uh, sending Kike Hernandez back out to uh, center field. Um, that's one option. Um, and then, uh, you know, I know today's lineup for the game against the left-hander features um, a middle infield of Christian Arroyo at second and Yu Chang at short. And uh, Yu Chang is another uh, option for them, you know, more of a natural shortstop. Uh, so there's that one. Um, and then, you know, they could always just keep Kike at, at short. And uh, they do have a few center field options available to them, including uh, Rob Raff Snyder, who, again, you know, as we're recording this, uh, he actually took Jeffrey Springs deep uh, a few minutes ago, which, uh, you know, is one of the few dents that's been put in Jeffrey Springs so far this year. Uh, so, you know, he may see some time in center field uh, against, uh, he's playing left today, but could see some center field time against left-handed pitchers primarily. Uh, and then there's Raimel Tapia, who, uh, you know, is another option and, you know, sort of the only left-handed hitter whose name I've brought up so far. So, uh, you know, he may see a lot of time against uh, right-handed pitchers. 
and uh, so that, that's your whole cast of characters. Um, you know, not a not a ton of uh, just surefire fantasy uh, uh, prospects there, but uh, you know, with the playing time there, you know, that can be useful. Uh, you know, depending on the configuration of of your league. Yeah, but it's only going to be useful if you think that somebody out of this group starts to dominate the playing time, if they keep spreading it around so that everybody gets, you know, 75% of the playing time and it's one guy here this day and another guy here the next day. I don't know, especially in mixed leagues, it just doesn't seem like the volume's going to be there if they're not focusing the playing time on one or two guys rather than four or five. No, I think, I think that's, that's probably correct. I mean, and, and uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I keep looking over the name, you know, over the list of, of, the, of who's going to emerge. And, uh, you know, Ref Snyder has been surprisingly good when he's played for the Red Sox. But, uh, you know, again, I don't know that I see him getting a lot of, uh, a lot of time against uh, right-handed pitching. Um, although, you know, maybe in any port in the storm kind of situation. I was a bit surprised to see Dahlbeck get the call. I know a right-handed bat is something that they were looking for, but outfielder Jaron Duran has had a decent start at AAA. I mean, Jaron Duran's had decent starts in the past, of course, and not followed up in the major leagues, but he was kind of five for 21, which isn't tremendous, but not too bad. He had a homer, some walks, more walks and strikeouts. Uh, why didn't Jaron Duran get the call? Yeah, it was mostly the the uh, factor that we mentioned earlier about the the stretch of left-handed pitchers. It it sounds like you should expect um, Duran to get the call, um, you know, once they get past this stretch of of left-handed pitchers, and then you know it'll sort of be, uh, you know, what uh, manager Alex Cora wants to do between uh, Duran and and Tapia against right-handed pitching. Um, you know, it would be interesting to see Duran, you know, sort of, uh, I don't think it was really the plan to kind of give him, um, you know, it, I think the plan was hope to get him on a roll again at, at Worcester and then maybe promote, uh, promote him, you know, when they could see him as nearly an everyday player to see if he can finally sort of, um, you know, unlock some success at, at the major league level. Um, but you know, every uh, challenge is an opportunity. So maybe this is sort of, uh, you know, I know uh, when it came down to their final roster cuts, it was sort of D Duran versus Tapia, and um, they they kept Tapia maybe not necessarily because they believed in his hot spring, but just because it sort of made sense to hoard um, outfielders just in case something like this Duval injury actually happened. Um, they may actually prefer Duran to Tapia as a starter in a case like this where Duvall is is out of the mix. Um, so, you know, I, I would sort of, uh, you know, in a deep enough league, if you want to speculate on Duran both getting the call, which it sounds like he will get, and then, um, and then performing well once he gets it and getting the playing time, you know, that's not the worst idea in, in a deep league. I looked him up and he actually performed fairly well on a platoon basis in the minors, pretty much equal OPS is around 800 against left and right handed pitching. But in the major leagues, it just hasn't been that way. He's really struggled. I think I saw an OPS in the 400s and a 30% strikeout rate. And 
you know, if he's going to become a volume player, he's going to have to figure out left-handed pitching. And left-handed pitching in the big leagues is a step ahead of left-handed pitching in the minor leagues, as we know. You also said, Chris, that some of the mixing and matching included using the shortstop slot, Dahlbeck maybe, Kike Hernandez maybe, Yu Chang maybe, and rotating everybody around like musical chairs with one guy sitting out. What about Adalberto Mondesi? Yeah. So, I mean, you know, I have no idea. I can't read uh, team president Hein Bloom's mind, but I, I almost sort of think that, uh, you know, I think they placed him on the 60 day DL uh, because they were, you know, they wanted the 40 man roster spot to keep, uh, you know, to keep a guy like Tapia and to keep, extra relief pitchers and so forth. And, um, you know, I don't think it was necessarily the case that he still needed two months more to recover from his ACL. He had been doing some work. He had been, uh, you know, the rehab was going a little more slowly than they wanted, but, you know, saying that he'd be out basically till the end of May, um, didn't really sound like, um, you know, that he needed all that time. Um, but unfortunately, they made the transaction, so now he's uh, on that list, and you can't uh, activate him until May thirtieth. Uh, but you know he he's been coming along supposedly, and uh, according to reports, and he's been uh, taking BP and fielding grounders. Um, and I know that uh, you know. Look, I, I said earlier the uh, middle infield today was Christian Arroyo and Yu Chang, and uh, you know you'd like to think that uh, for all of Mondesi's issues with contact and and so forth. Um, he, he'd bring a little bit more to the table than uh, than a guy like Yu Chang. Not exactly Joe Morgan and Davey Concepcion, that's for sure. Uh, at which point, the countdown till May 30th will start another countdown, which will be to Adalberto's next injury. But before we leave this situation in Boston, any further information on Duval's recovery period? Because for the first couple of days, they were playing it pretty close to the vest. Yeah. Yeah. It's understandable. I mean, this is a guy who's had broken wrists before and needed surgery. That's not the case this time around. Apparently they're going to just throw a cast on it and, uh, you know, just wait it out. And uh, so that puts his timetable at, uh, you know, six to eight weeks. So we're talking, you know, mid-May to early June return. Um, you know, we'll see, you know, presumably he goes straight back into center field, although that was sort of a controversial, um, uh, you know, decision to begin with to to take a 34 year old outfielder and say, you know, I know you've played the corner for for uh, most of your career or at least a recent part of your career. We're going to throw you into center. Um, and and you know, the uh, naysayers might say that the injury was sort of a direct result of that uh, decision. Although it seemed to me like you could you know hurt yourself diving for a uh, you know a bloop uh, in right field just as easily as, as center, but. Um, you know, we'll see what emerges over these next several weeks. And, you know, there's always the option, um, you know, if Kike sort of gets back in the swing out there, if Jaron Duran catches fire, you know, Verdugo's played some center. Uh, so, you know, you may see him come back as, uh, you know, a corner uh, outfielder if uh, if they're worried about the defensive rigors and, you know, re-aggravating that wrist. So we'll see. And of course, there's always the DH slot open. Am I not correct in thinking that Adam Duvall played center field in Atlanta? Um, He played some, but I think it was it was uh, primarily uh, you know uh, a corner. It was I think it was a a split between the two, um, but I think it was more 
uh, more more left than than uh, center. But your point is well taken. He, he could have had this accident in, in any of the three outfield positions, or frankly, as an infielder running out. You know, it's just a, he he dove for a ball and his glove folded underneath his arm is what it looked like to me when I watched the replay. And God knows there was enough opportunities to watch the replay, but I only watched it once. It was bad enough when I've got him in two teams. Um, in Tampa, longtime top prospect shortstop Wander Franco had been a bit of a disappointment in 652 plate appearances through his first couple of years. Uh, decent batting averages, but only 13 home runs and 10 stolen bases through that time, and I think people were expecting more. Uh, Stephen Nickrand looked at Wander Franco in his latest hitters column about notable week one performances. What was Steve Stephen's take on Wander Franco. Well, the the exact quote is that Franco is quote on the path towards a breakout season, and and of course, um, you know the trap that that fantasy managers frequently fall into, especially with young players who arrive with uh, much fanfare and uh, prospect pedigree, is that we always think that that uh, breakout season is going to uh, arrive uh, sooner than it ultimately does. Um, but here's a case where, uh, you know, Franco just 22, uh, through 11 games, he's, you know, batting 311, four home runs, two steals, um, you know, prorated that's, uh, 50 homers and 25 stolen bases. I'm not, I have him on a team thankfully, and, but I'm not taking those numbers to the bank just yet. Uh, but nonetheless, you know, from the very beginning, Franco has been, um, you know, a, a pretty good, uh, has had great plate discipline, puts the bat on the ball. Um, what, what I guess is sort of different this year is the quality of that contact. Um, we're talking 90 mile an hour, uh, average exit velocity, 18% barrel rate, 37% hard hit percentage. I mean, all, all of those things look, um, you know, really good. He hasn't sort of, uh, best at his max EV yet, but, uh, you know, we'll see what, what, uh, you know, happens from here. Um, but, you know, long story short, uh, you know, when a, uh, a prospect with as much promise as Franco, um, you know, does sort of hit his stride, uh, you know, this is sort of what it looks like. And if Wander Franco is available in your league's free agent pool, you need to find a better league. <laughs> In Texas, uh, utility man Mitch Garver, a catcher by trade, was placed on the 10-day IL with what the team called a mild knee strain. He still hasn't got his catcher eligibility for this year. He's got three catcher starts. Uh, Rod Truesdell covers the Rangers for playing time today. What's the story with Mitch Garver? Yeah, I mean, I guess that's sort of the uh, the main fantasy implication, right? If you have a 10-game eligibility or even a 5-game eligibility, you're sort of... Uh, hanging on, you know, waiting for him to acquire that eligibility. And now it's going to take a little bit longer, but, you know, sort of beyond that, um, you know, it, it's not really that bad news. It's he, not supposed to be on the shelf very long. Um, you know, this is a guy who does have a history of uh, ailments and injuries, five straight years that he's spent some time on the IL. So that that's never good, but at least in this case, it doesn't seem like it's that serious. And, and one way you can kind of tell, is that the uh, Rangers recalled uh, Sandy Leone, who uh, I think may have played for uh, every team in the majors by now, but uh, to to uh, replace him on the roster and not Sam Huff, a younger player with uh, a little bit more promise. And, um, you know, that basically says, 
to me that uh, you know they expect Garver uh, back sooner rather than later because uh, they don't want to uh, bring Sam Huff up not to play. Um, and, uh, you know, so, you know, baseball HQ, we, we moved, uh, 5% of the playing time between Leon and Huff. Um, you know, but we're not expecting much from, uh, Sandy Leon. We, we, we've seen his act in Boston. He can, you know, you know, care, you know, use a favorable hit rate from time to time to, to, to have a little bit of empty batting average, but, uh, even that is, uh, highly doubtful. In the BaseballHQ.com speculator column, analyst Ryan Bloomfield looked at how hitters were faring early on this season. According to the quality of batted balls metric, this is a relatively new BaseballHQ.com metric. I think it was invented by Eric Florimonti, if I'm not mistaken. And he takes StatCast measures and boils them down from exit velocity and launch angle to a three-digit code for every hitter so it's easier to follow. One of the standouts in Ryan's list of American League hitters was Oakland outfielder Ramon Laureano. Yeah, yeah, and it was Eric Florimonte, and uh, it, it's it's an awesome, it's one of the first things in the baseball forecaster that uh, as I'm reading those player boxes, you know, I'm taking note of some of these because uh, I think it is a, you know, it's a great way to sort of translate uh, some of this new data that we have into sort of actionable, um, you know, uh, evaluations of players and so forth. But uh, so, as you said, Loriano, the only American League bat with uh, A's across the board, straight A's for exit velocity, launch angle, uh, and uh, launch angle variability, um, consistency of, of, of the launch angle. Um, you know, and, and uh, one of the reasons Ryan writes a column like this is to sort of highlight the fact that he is making that really good contact and not yet getting the results. So that's sort of uh, very valuable intel for fantasy managers. Maybe you can go swing a trade and, and expect that eventually the uh, the good contact is going to translate into uh, to better results. Um, that being said, you know, Loriano is not exactly the, the most sure thing uh, out there. He's only reached 400 plate appearances once since 2019, you know, injuries, suspensions, whatever else. Um, but, uh, you know, between that early power boost and the fact that he does run, um, a bit, uh, 65 stolen bases in his last 600 plate appearances, um, you know, and, uh, you know, in terms of, um, accomplishment and, uh, veteran status, um, you know, in Oakland, he is, uh, you know, uh, sort of, he sticks out like a sore thumb among the cast of characters that they have on that roster at the moment, um, in terms of being a veteran with, uh, of some accomplishments. So, uh, he should continue to get the playing time as long as he is still there. And reports say Loriano has asked the A's to find a trade for him to a contender. And if he ended up in a better lineup or a better park, he could become even more valuable, assuming he can stay on the field, as you mentioned. In Minnesota, the Twins placed outfielder, first baseman, power monster Joey Gallo on the 10-day IL before Tuesday night's game. Rick Green covers the Twins for playing time today. Who gets Gallo's playing time while he's on the shelf? Well, I mean, so uh, like you say, the the, uh, the Minnesota didn't uh, immediately announce a corresponding move, but uh, they've recalled uh, second baseman Edouard Julien from AAA. Um, he's shown some power, some speed in the minors. Uh, you know, basically what he's done over a thousand plus plate appearances down in the minors translates to like a twenty thirty guy in the MLB. Although you know we can't really 
count on him to maintain those levels um, at the major league level. Um, but, you know, there is a ton of flux, a ton of injury um, going on in Minnesota. So, you know, you don't necessarily want to count on playing time for Julian. Um, we have Alex Kirilov, Jorge Polanco, I know, is sort of working his way back. Um, Gilberto Celestino, Max Kepler, um, you know, all could be kind of um, uh, working their way back into the lineup in some cases sooner than others. And, uh, you know, we've given Donovan Solano some first base time, uh, which is sort of a temporary thing, probably until Kirilov gets back, uh, which could be this week, early next week. Um, Gallo has uh, downplayed his injury, so he should be back fairly soon. And uh, but so for now, we just made a minimal adjustment, uh, you know, taking away five percent of his playing time and giving it to Solano. Let's move over to the American League pitchers. Cleveland made a couple of moves. First, they put right-handed starter Aaron Savali on the 15-day DL. He has a left oblique strain, and they recalled a right-hander named Peyton Battenfield from AAA. Then they had to clear a 40-man spot for Battenfield, and they moved right-handed starter Kristen McKenzie to the 60-day IL. Uh, Ryan Williams covering all of this for playing time today. What does it all mean? Uh, well, one of the things it means is that I'm bummed that one of my favorite, like late round starting pitching, uh, targets is on, is on the IL because, uh, Aaron Savali, I think, uh, you know, if you looked at the skills last year, the results didn't match it. And, you know, I, I love to try to, uh, sneak those guys on late, you know, uh, in the understanding that, that the results are going to, you know, improve and, and in the early going, they sort of did, but, uh, now he's hurt. So, oh, well. Um, so the McKenzie move, you know, as as with uh, as we talked about with Adalberto Monesi earlier, sometimes you get shifted to the 60 day DL not because you um, you know suffered some sort of setback or or uh, the injury's worse than feared, but just because they need the roster spot. Um, so his timetable really hasn't changed. Um, the injury to Savali, though, on top of uh, McKenzie's injury, you know that that just sort of opens another hole there. Uh, you know, it sounds like Savale is going to be out at least a few weeks. Uh, so that means, like you said, that there's some opening here. Um, Battenfield, you know, is going to make at least one start and then we'll see where things go from there. Um, a couple other options that are either on the Cleveland roster already or are in the high minors are Xavier Curry. He's currently in the bullpen. Um, in Cleveland and pitching in a long relief role reasonably effectively. And then there's a guy by the name of Connor Pilkington, who people may remember he, he did, did make 11 starts with Cleveland last year. He's currently pitching in AAA Columbus. He got absolutely tattooed in his first AAA start, uh, 10 runs, nine of them earned, 11 hits, two home runs. Uh, but he settled down the second time out and had, had a little bit better go of it. Um, but I think his name sort of comes up just because he does have that uh, that major league experience. The Guardians also have a couple of primo prospects in Logan Allen and Tanner Bibby. Uh, what chance did they see the big league sooner rather than later? Well, if it was up to fantasy managers, I think it would be sooner rather than later. I mean, a couple, like you say, very interesting prospects who also, um, you know, got off to some really nice starts down in the in the minors um, on his uh, minor league career through 26 
minor league starts, uh, Bibby has a 2.09 ERA and a whip under one, uh, 32% K rate, 5% walk rate. So he's doing all the things that we like to see in terms of uh, missing bats and, you know, not giving out the free passes. In his first start, um, he went five innings, didn't give up a run, seven strikeouts, you know, good stuff. Um, and then Allen, um, you know, his minor league track record may be slightly less sparkling, but still very good. 3.51 ERA, 1.12 whip in 50 starts or 50 appearances, 48 of them starts. Um, 32% K rate, same, 8% walk rate, a little higher. He's pitched twice so far this season in the minors, 9.2 innings pitched, one earned run, 11 to four strikeout to walk. Um, so, you know, I think I would rather see one of these guys up rather than uh, Connor Pilkington or, or Xavier Curry, but uh, we'll see if Cleveland uh, ultimately agrees. It doesn't seem like um, their call-ups are, are imminent. Which seems odd, you know, because Cleveland, I think, has playoff aspirations, and rightfully so. They're a pretty solid club. They've kind of ridden that uh, that offensive slap and dash and steal bases and run around in solid defense. And they look like a, a team, if maybe not a top-level contender, certainly a team that can get out of the American League Central. And yet here they are with these kind of really second-rate starting pitching options, and they've got these two studs sitting there in the minor leagues. And I don't know if it's playing time shenanigans or, you know, contract-related shenanigans or arbitration shenanigans, but it's just a shame that they're not doing what they really should do for their fans and for the club and try to see if these guys are good. On the other hand, Cleveland's really good at developing their pitchers, so maybe they know something about these two young pitchers that we don't, and there's a good, solid reason that they're not calling them up. It's just too bad, especially for those of us who have one or the other or both of them in our reserve lists. Uh, Back to Tampa, the Rays placed right-handed starter Zach Eflin on the 15-day IL. He's got lower back tightness. Uh, You covered this one for playing time today. Chris, what's the scoop? Uh, well, the scoop is that uh, they made the move retroactive to April 8th. That's always the sign that says, hey, you know, we, we uh, don't think that this is going to go um, maybe even the full 15 days. Um, uh, Eflin's had, he told reporters that he's had sort of similar issues to this in the past. And so he's not really worried about it. He, he sort of knows what he needs to do to get past it. They did an MRI, no problem cropped up on that. Um, but uh, they did, uh, you know, do something of, of note for fantasy managers. They called up their top uh, pitching prospect and gave him a start in Wednesday's game against the Red Sox. Um, he uh, outdueled, I guess I'll use that word, outdueled Chris Sale, though if you saw Sale's performance, that wasn't very hard to do. Uh, he, uh, Taj Bradley, went five innings. He struck out eight, which is nice to see. Uh, gave up three earned runs, and I believe he got the win. Um, and the next time this turn comes up is, uh, in Cincinnati in the great American small park. Um, and you know, the, the Reds offense has actually been a little bit better than you might think. Um, so that start could be dangerous for him or for whoever they give, uh, that start to. Well, since you mentioned it, how likely is it that, uh, Bradley ends up with a more or less permanent spot in the Tampa rotation? You know, the um, the reporting on Tampa, at least initially when he was first called up, was basically uh, sort of a cautionary note to uh, to fantasy managers to not get used to seeing uh, Taj in uh, Tampa for too long. 
the reporting was that uh, you know the the Eflin thing sort of cropped up a little quickly, and and uh, he was the guy who was on turn. So you know they do have other guys down there, Yanni Chirinos and Luis Patino. Um, and so uh, Bradley got the call this time around, um, but it didn't sound like he was going to even be guaranteed the second time around. We'll, we'll have to see whether his performance on Wednesday changes that thinking. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I, w I think, you know, the bottom line here is that Bradley is probably a better long-term play than someone you should be counting on, um, you know, for the immediate future or, or even this season. Before we leave the Taj Bradley start, uh, you mentioned that Chris Sale uh, laid yet another egg. I think he four innings, seven runs, five earned. He's had seven runs allowed in two out of his three starts this year and four in five innings in the other start, and that was at Detroit, which you know is, is not uh, real uh, exciting. He got the win in that one. But just from the point of view of a Boston guy, is Chris Sale done? <laughs> um, well, you know, you've definitely hit a weak spot there. I, I was also the guy that wrote up Chris Sale for the baseball forecaster uh, this this uh, year, and people who have the book should go reread it. I am. Uh, I, I wish I knew how to quit Chris Sale. I can't. Um, the peripherals still, 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 still this year look okay. Um, he's striking people out. He, he got victimized by the long ball. Um, you know, my my resolve is being uh, beaten down by these terrible results, but I have him on uh, way too many teams, um, so I'm trying sort of not to give up on him. Um, the Red Sox can't either give up on him, I don't think. Uh, they're paying him too much money, and I don't think um, they'd be able to find... Uh, although I guess with pitching the way it is, maybe they could find a, a trade uh, for him. But I, I, I uh, you know, it would be fifty cents, twenty-five cents on the dollar. Um, so I think for both the Red Sox and myself, I think we need to hold tight and hope that the results turn um, because at least some things look um, reasonably okay. Um, and if, if um, you know, sort of uh, want to means anything, you know, Sale always takes accountability and, and uh, says the right things about how, how he needs to do better. But at certain, a certain point, he actually uh, needs to do better. 30% strikeout rate is pretty good, but he's walking 11% of the batters he's facing. And uh, along with some pretty horrendous uh, hit percentage luck, uh, his hit percent rate uh, or, um, uh, Babip, if you like, is is Babip's four seventy. His hit percent is forty seven percent. That should be around thirty, and his strand rate is around fifty percent. That should be around seventy. His expected ERA is actually under four, and his actual ERA is over eleven. So uh, there has to be some kind of movement here before too long. He's actually been a seven dollar player according to Baseball HQ's valuation so far this year, and that's not easy to do with an eleven twenty five ERA. No, no. Like I said, it's. It, it, you have to squint really hard, but it's not all uh, not all bad news on sale. Although, you know what matters for what our standings look like is that eleven twenty five ERA, and uh, that's not not helping anybody. Yeah, especially in so few innings. Uh, you cover the Red Sox for playing time tomorrow, Chris. And in the article this week, you noted that Boston left-hander James Paxton, uh, most of us drafted on the expectation that he'd step right back into the Red Sox rotation when he gets back from the IL. And now you say we might be disappointed. 
Yeah, it's sort of weird coming off uh, talking about uh, Chris Sale's struggles, but um, you know the Red Sox do have a bit of a glut of starting pitching. Dare I say? Maybe I don't know. It, it seems that way. Uh, you know they they've got um, five pitchers in their rotation who either. Um, like I said, they're either committed to because of contract or or seniority between uh, Sale and and Corey Kluber, um, or you know ha- have been doing the job like Nick Pavetta and um, Tanner Houck and uh, and so forth. So um, the uh, and Garrett Whitlock just came back, so he had a rough first start. But uh, so that's that. I count five guys there. Um, so really, there's no room for either Paxton or uh, Brian Bello, who's who's uh, maybe a little bit closer to returning to uh, the majors. Um, so, but uh, Alex Cora, the manager of the Red Sox, uh, you know, specifically spoke to Paxton's status and, you know, was sort of noncommittal about whether he'd go back in the rotation. He said that, you know, as of now, we're going to stretch him out. Um, I don't think Paxton has very much of a history of pitching out of the bullpen, uh, but maybe that is sort of um, the best role for him, given the just sort of epic uh, health <laughs> issues that he's had in, in recent years. Uh, maybe we should walk before we run and, and get him out there, you know, pitching one, two innings at a time before we ask him to go five or six, um, you know, it, especially given the fact that the team is quite excited about Brian Bello, who uh, had a really nice rehab start on April 11th. He went six innings. He had a one earned run. His fastball was touching 97. Uh, So he's sort of the future of the Red Sox. Uh, And, uh, you know, and, uh, but, you know, as I just laid out, even Bello's going to have a tough time kind of sneaking back into the rotation. Although between uh, Tanner Houck and uh, Garrett Whitlock, you do have a couple guys there who do have some experience pitching out of the bullpen. So if if they do want to give Bello um, a regular turn, there, there's ways to do it. Uh, but it's definitely unclear as to how they're going to sort of uh, have this all shake out. Um, you know, these things sometimes work themselves out, um, and sometimes people play a little bit of shenanigans with uh, the IL and so forth. But uh, you know, we'll have to see see what happens with uh, with all these arms that are capable of starting in Boston. I believe Hauk is scheduled to start tonight, Friday night, against the Angels in Los Angeles. Uh, In Chicago, shortstop Tim Anderson, who has been batting nearly 300 with five stolen bases so far this year, he has a left knee strain. He's going to miss two to four weeks, they say. Uh, The White Sox recalled infielder Lennon Sosa. Rick Green covers the White Sox for playing time today. What happens to Tim Anderson's playing time while he's on the shelf? Yeah, no, just as I alluded to earlier, you know, this is the week for shortstop injuries. And, and those of us who are Tim Anderson fans, uh, you know, it's uh, here we go again a little bit, although this one's not quite as bad as, as the one uh, ones we've seen in, in other seasons. Um, you know, we think uh, Elvis Andrews, who, uh, you know, finished up strong at the end of last year, is going to slide over to shortstop just like he did at the end of last year. Um, and then, you know, second base is where there's some some play here. You know, as you mentioned, they called up Lennon Sosa. There's also Hanser Alberto and, and Romy Gonzalez. Um, Baseball HQ assigned uh, 10% of Anderson's playing time to Sosa. Uh, but Gonzalez was the one who first got the first start here. He's moved around the diamond, second base, third base, outfield. 
um, but uh, hasn't hit where no matter where he was on the lineup card, three for 19 so far. Um, Hunter Alberto, you know, people probably know his act by now. Um, not a lot of power there. Maybe can make some decent contact. He was hitting uh, 286 with a one home run. Um, so Sosa had been off to a really hot start at AAA, and, and it would be kind of interesting if, the, if they kind of use this opportunity to see if he can kind of ride that uh, hot start into the majors. Um, you know, he, he was slashing 448, 556, 828 with two homers, uh, eight RBI, seven walks, which is nice to see, and only five strikeouts. So another guy sort of like Jaron Duran that we mentioned earlier who has been walking more than he was striking out. Um, hasn't gotten it done at the major league level just yet. 139 career head hitter in just over 100 league, 100 big league uh, plate appearances. But you know, of that whole crew between the hands of Alberto and Romy Gonzalez, you know, if you're going to take a shot at somebody here, Lennon Sosa's seems like the most interesting guy. In Detroit, right-handed starter Matt Manning broke his fifth metatarsal on his right foot. That's the long bone that heads down towards your pinky toe. He's likely headed to the IL. Uh, Tim Cavanaugh covers the Tigers for playing time today. The Tigers weren't exactly overloaded with quality starting pitchers anyway, so what are they going to do assuming Manning hits the IL? Yeah, so uh, you know they didn't immediately announce a, a replacement, but uh, A.J. Hinch told reporters uh, that the plan seems to be to go with uh, Michael Lorenzen. And uh, he's been on the injured list with a groin injury, uh, but apparently he will make his next start in the big leagues. <clears throat> Although that still has to get clearance from the medical staff. And, uh, you know, he converted from a reliever to a starter last year with the Angels and uh, had a nice second half, although it was only five starts, limited innings, 3.59 XERA, 28% strikeouts. Uh, percentage and uh, strike percentage rather. And, uh, you know, so Lorenzen is marginally interesting, but uh, between the injury issues that he's had usually with the shoulder and uh, his poor control, he's not a sure thing, but like you say, he uh, may be kind of the best of a bad lot um, there in Detroit. Not a lot of other options there. If Lorenzen does take Manning's next start, he'd be against San Francisco in San Francisco and San Francisco is Major League Baseball's eighth-ranked offense by WOBA, so not an auspicious place to begin your comeback if you're Michael Lorenzen. The Angels activated right-handed starter Griffin Canning from the IL, and he got a soft touch for his first start back. Uh, he got Washington on Wednesday. Uh, Brent Hershey covering the story for playing time today. How does Canning's return affect the uh, Angels' rotation? Well, as we all know, the Angels sort of have a uh, special situation with Shohei Otane, and, and they, uh, you know, like to keep him on uh, regular rest. So, you know, Canning is, uh, you know, goes into that role of of a sixth starter, sometimes reliever. Uh, you know, sort of depending on um, where uh, Otani's schedule falls, and uh, so, you know, we've given Canning some additional innings. Um, and uh, also readjusted another pitcher on the Angel staff, uh, Tucker Davidson, presuming that he's going to return to a multi-inning relief role. All right, Chris, uh, interesting stuff so far. Take a breather, and then we'll come back. We'll do the National League. Sounds great. Judge hitting 310 after the one hit in game one. High fly ball. He's done it! 
Judge is the American League single-season home run leader. BAL King, case closed. Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Patrick Davitt with Chris Olson from Baseball HQ. We're talking about the news. And Chris, let's go into the National League. I mentioned earlier Stephen Nickran had his hitting column looking at first week stars. And I wanted to ask you about an Arizona outfielder that Stephen mentioned, and it wasn't Corbin Carroll. Unbelievable that it's not Cor- Corbin Carroll. Uh, you know, Twitter baseball darling Corbin Carroll. But uh, Alec Thomas, uh, you, know, we, you know, sort of overshadowed by... Uh, by Carroll and, you know, and then sort of uh, lived up to that lack of attention by going four for 20 in his first seven starts. Um, All four hits came in the seventh game. So, uh, you know, but Stephen noted that, uh, you know, Thomas was showing good plate discipline, 13% walk rate, only striking out uh, only 4% K rate. uh, So three, you know, an eye of three, which is sort of unheard of. And uh, he was making more hard contact than many power hitters. So with a uh, 95 mile an hour uh, average exit velocity, 109 max EV. So this is sort of, uh, you know, even more extreme example of what we talked about with uh, Loriano, where, um, you know, the numbers are telling one story and, and the uh, the metrics are telling another or the, or the, uh, the other data. Um, so, uh, you know, the results still aren't coming for Thomas in his last three starts, one for 11 with one run, one RBI, one stolen base, but, uh, you know, it's, it's a case where maybe you shouldn't give up on him too quickly. Uh, he could be a uh, sneaky multi-category contributor as the season moves along, you know, provided that he can, uh, can find the playing time. One homer, one RBI, one for 11. The ones are wild for Alec (laughs) Thomas. Uh, You mentioned earlier this was not a great period for shortstops. Maybe the worst news of the week was in Pittsburgh where O'Neill Cruz is going to miss four months. He's going to have surgery or has had surgery on his fractured left ankle. He broke it in an ugly looking slide, uh, I think against the White Sox. And there was a, a some kind of bench clearing brawl that occurred uh, not shortly after the incident. Uh, who's going to get the playing time in Pittsburgh with Cruz out until probably August at the earliest? Well, I mean, so, uh, you know, like you said, horrible news uh, for Cruz fans, but uh, I guess it's going to be Rodolfo Castro, who, you know, saw some time with the major league team last year. will get most of the starts at shortstop, uh, which would sort of leave the time we had allocated to him at second base available. Uh, you know, we've sort of split it up between Mark Mathias and Jihuan Bay, uh, who started there on Tuesday. Bay has sort of, uh, you know, made a little bit of a name for himself early going on in, in Pittsburgh this year, where uh, opportunity is plentiful. I guess that's sort of the nice way to say it. Um, he had a walk-off home run the other night where uh, if you're on Twitter and can find the um, Korean uh, call on that is is pretty epic. Uh, but, uh, you know, Bay not really known for his power. He's more of a, a speed guy. Um, but, uh, you know, it, as long as he stays in the lineup and he's he's sort of managed to do that one way or the other, different positions and so forth so far, he could be a nice uh, boost in stolen bases for fantasy managers going forward. Um, they also tend to, 
hit him pretty high up in the lineup, uh, which, you know, will, will increase his opportunities. Uh, Matthias can do a little bit of everything, nothing particularly well. Um, but, you know, as I said earlier, Pittsburgh, uh, opportunity is there for the taking. Um, and, uh, you know, he has had a little bit of, uh, major league success between, uh, Texas and Milwaukee last year, six home runs and three stolen bases and 91 plate appearances. You know, that prorates out to a, uh, you know, a double-double sort of interesting, semi-interesting player over extended playing time, which he may now be able to get uh, in Pittsburgh. We talked earlier about Ryan Bloomfield's column looking at the QBAB metric and a National League hitter who made the grade was Trent Grisham, who notched an AAC grade, which is pretty darn good, after a disastrous 2022. Hmm. Yeah, and it's sort of interesting, right? Because um, you know, I think Grisham, um, you know, was was sort of a guy that uh, you know the pendulum may be swinging here, where he you know got to a point where he had uh, may have been overvalued, and now, at least what QBAB is telling us is that uh, you know maybe he's uh, gone all the way to the opposite end of the spectrum, is is maybe a little bit undervalued. Uh, you know, he's one of only two hitters uh, with a current year score of A for exit velocity after Dior last year, like you said, uh, Heimer Condelario, another underachiever from last year, um, is on that list as well. And, you know, he has plenty of opportunity ahead of him in, in Washington. Um, and, uh, you know, things to remember about Grisham, he's still just 26 years old. Um, he's hitting at least for the moment, um, until Fernando Tatis is back at the top of a of a very good San Diego lineup. Um, he posted one of the uh, unluckiest hit rates in baseball last year, 23%. And uh, so he, uh, you know, he's got three early home runs. And, uh, you know, between that good contact and his decent speed skills, you know, could he make a run at 20 home runs, 10 stolen bases? Yeah, he could. And, and by now, you know, like I said, a lot of people may have already given up on him ever uh, getting back to that level. Moving over to the pitchers, but staying in San Diego, the Padres have announced that right-handed starter Joe Musgrove, who's going to set some kind of record this year for wacky uh, injuries, he was supposed to be back this week after recovering from a, the toe that he broke by dropping a kettlebell on it while he was exercising will likely now be delayed until the end of April because basically he fell over. Right, right. Well, I mean, and this is why I stay as far away from kettlebells as, as possible, Patrick, but, uh, yeah, and, you and uh, both. yeah, but the other thing I can relate to, which is falling over awkwardly, um, you know, in, in his case, uh, fielding a uh, ground ball, and uh, that has led to a cortisone injection in his right shoulder. Uh, very disappointing. I think a lot of us um, sort of rostered Musgrove on the thinking that he, in draft season, was being discounted a little bit too much uh, based on sort of a minor and fluky injury. And we, we thought we were so smart, we could sneak him onto our roster at a reasonable price and he would be back before we knew it. Well, you know, best laid plans it didn't quite work out that way. Um, now it looks like his first start will either come during a uh, April 25th to 27th series against the Cubs or April 29th to 30th against the Giants. So we have to wait a little bit longer than we were expecting. Uh, Ryan Weathers should continue to fill in uh, for Musgrove. Um, and then, you know, another guy who's in the um, 
San Diego rotation for the moment is Seth Lugo, who's been really effective through two starts, 13 innings, two earned runs, 12 Ks. Um, so when we get to the point where Musgrove is back, you'll be looking at probably a battle between Lugo and Nick Martinez for the fifth spot in the, uh, in the rotation there in San Diego. Milwaukee placed right-hander Brandon Woodruff on the 15-day IL and recalled right-hander Jason Junk from AAA. Uh, Alan Davison covering this one for playing time today. How does the Milwaukee rotation look with Woodruff out and apparently J- Jason Junk in? Woodruff had been dealing with right shoulder infl- inflammation and he um, you know, tried to pitch through it um, and did get the win and he didn't give up any earned runs. Uh, velocity was okay um, and so forth. Um, you know, so I think this is just mostly a case of, um, you know, Milwaukee sort of playing it safe with one of their uh, more important pitchers. Um, you know, we're thinking that he's only going to miss two starts. So therefore we've only really at this point, uh, moved, uh, 1% of, uh, the innings that were allocated to Woodruff over to junk. Um, you know, he's had some early success at AAA, uh, you know, but between, uh, you know, being sort of, uh, a young pitcher and, uh, maybe not here for the long haul, uh, you know, he probably he may not be worth sort of uh, banking on too much, and and you know I think everybody hopes that Woodruff will be back before too long. In Atlanta, the Braves activated Kyle Wright and sent Dylan Dodd back to AAA. What do we think about that? You had to figure Wright would get back um, into the rotation. I mentioned uh, Garrett Whitlock earlier, and it's kind of funny. I I. Um, you know, have both of those guys, Garrett Whitlock and Kyle Wright, on a particular team. And um, I sort of made the mistake. I, I think there is a school of, of thought out there in the world that uh, maybe in their first start back from the AIL, you sh- if you have the ability to do so, you should probably keep a pitcher on the reserve just to uh, let him get his feet under him. And, and sometimes they don't even go deep into the game in those first starts. Um, and I should have listened to that little, uh, you know, nagging thought that I had um, and avoided both uh, Whitlock and Wright. Um, you know, Wright only went three innings. He gave up four hits, four runs. He did have three strikeouts, but he walked four. Um, so, you know, I guess the hope is that that's, you know, rust and not, you know, lingering impact of the injury. Um, but at least for now, I, you know, the expectation is that, you um, you know, Wright will be uh, sort of onward and upward and, and be able to take his regular turn. Um, you know, Dodd, uh, you know, between him and Jared Schuster, you know, I think a lot of people sort of rolled the dice with a couple of those young Atlanta starters when they, you know, got some early uh, starts for the team. Dodd, one good start, one not good start. Um, and, uh, you know, now he sort of probably faces an uphill battle to get back in the rotation. Uh, Max Fried is on his way back. Bryce Elder has been pitching well. You got Michael Soroka rehabbing in AAA. So, you know, a lot of options for the for the Braves. And uh, so Dodd may be a little bit further down on the list than he was uh, just a couple weeks ago. 
Dodd will not face playing time competition from right-handed starter Ian Anderson, who's already out, but the news has confirmed Tommy John surgery a little later on. He's going to miss the rest of the 2023 season. In Cincinnati, Chris, the Reds have been giving a right-handed reliever Ian Gibalt. I'm not sure I'm saying that correctly, but he's getting lots of high leverage work in the early going, including a save opportunity on Sunday. Zach Larson covers the Reds for playing time today at Baseball HQ. How interested should we be in Ian Gibalt? Um, well, I mean, I guess you always have to, especially on a team where at least for a while they didn't have a very settled, um, you know, if we remember back to last year, uh, you know, it was, uh, you know, you, you were uh, running a fool's errand trying to figure out who uh, was going to get the next save opportunity. That's, you know, sort of no longer the case, as we'll discuss in a second. Uh, but Jibalt, uh nailed down one save opportunity on Sunday, but then he had blown one the night before. Um, but, you know, the bottom line is that uh, Alexis Diaz's uh, role is is probably not in jeopardy or certainly isn't in jeopardy. Um, he's been striking out people. His, his uh, control has been a little wobbly, but, uh, you know, but uh, he's sort of the unquestioned leader of that bullpen for the moment. Um, Jabal, more of a control artist, uh, 1.9 walks per nine, but uh, only a 7.7 K per nine. Uh, and in the meantime, you have, you know, sort of a more uh, a reliever, more in the classic um, power arm mold and Lucas Sims, who's beginning a rehab assignment, um, who could figure in if he can make it all the way back. Um, never a sure thing with Sims, but uh, but that's at least on the horizon. Um, so for now, um, you know, we're keeping an eye on on Jabal, um, especially when Diaz is unavailable, but uh, probably not a rush right out and grab a type of reliever. There's probably a little bit better save speculations out there in the world. All right, Chris, thanks very much for helping us out with the news again this week. And I think um, you might be back next week as well. Yeah. Oh. Well, that's news to me, Patrick, but uh, I'd be happy to do it. All right. Fantastic. We'll talk to you then. All right. Thanks. Chris Olson is a team playing time analyst at BaseballHQ.com. We've had some breaking news since our call. First, Atlanta will place shortstop Orlando Arcia on the IL. He's got a micro fracture of his left wrist. The Braves haven't said how long Arcia might be out, nor who might get his playing time while he's out. Journeyman Yahire Adrianza took over after Arcia left Wednesday's game, but this might be significant. Vaughn Grissom was not in AAA Gwinnett's lineup on Thursday night and reportedly will be recalled and available to play tonight, Friday, April the 14th. And if that's the case... There was a lot of interest in Vaughn Grissom during draft season, and he's likely going to get plenty of playing time. Not only did he thrive as Atlanta's second baseman late in 2022, he currently has a 10.43 OPS in AAA. Thanks to Phil Hertz of BaseballHQ.com for that report. In other news, the Reds activated outfielder Nick Senzel from the IL and optioned outfielder Will Benson back to AAA. Benson has struggled mightily in the early going, so the club hopes that playing every day in the minors will get him back on track. Senzel, meanwhile, is not a sure thing. His health will be a major limiting factor to him finding regular plate appearances. Coming up next, we have part two of our feature expert interview with Glenn Colton. But first, let me tell you that the proper pronunciation of that Cincinnati reliever is Ian Gibo, and his father was an elite ball player, a first-class cricket player on the Isle of Jersey over there in Great Britain. 
Now let's highlight another great item on the Baseball HQ site. In lineup's Outlook batting order analysis, analyst Greg Jewett looks at the leadoff slots in San Francisco, Philadelphia, Pittsburgh, and Houston. Lineup's Outlook batting order analysis, another great resource at BaseballHQ.com. Baseball HQ Radio. You love And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Patrick Davitt with Glenn Colton from the Colton and the Wolfman radio show on Sirius XM Fantasy Sports Radio. Glenn, welcome back to part two. Oh, thank you. Having fun so far. Yeah, it's good. In your many writings about fantasy baseball, Glenn, you guys have really focused on a method of fantasy baseball management called the smart system and much of it focuses on draft prep and and how to do an effective draft but the m in smart stands for management and there's a substantial component of it for in-season management which is really critical as we know nowadays to success in fantasy baseball can you walk us through some of the key points in in in-season management according to the smart system yeah sure absolutely patrick i mean it's really important to just not be complacent, to constantly evaluate, you know, your team, where are your strengths, where are your weaknesses, where are maybe some opportunities to make trades. You've got a lot of speed, you've got a lot of saves, where can you maximize the trade value of your team, but also watching what's going on in baseball and looking for opportunities to make fab pickups before other people get onto it. Let's look at you guys do a leverage index over at Baseball HQ. I think that's really good for relievers. And, you know, who's coming in with the game tied or who's coming in late in the game? Which teams have foundering closers where you might be able to get a cheap uh, potential set of saves? You know, which minor leaguer is tearing it up and is likely to get called up? So make the move a week or two earlier. All of that designed to maximize the value that you'll be able to get uh, on your team. I thought it was interesting, too, that this is something that not a lot of people do, which is keep an eye out on who your competitors are cutting from their rosters because maybe they're wrong. Oh, 100%. And uh, the first thing I do when I see that a player that doesn't make sense that, that they would be cut is cut, I go look at some of the advanced metrics. Is their BABIP really, really low? Or is their strand rate really low as a pitcher, you know? Is the Babbitt really high as a pitcher? Various indicators or, you know, have they not been throwing their best pitch? I mean, you really look, why is this good player on the on the wire? And if I find something that says this player shouldn't have been put on the wire, I'll bid big to go get him. You mentioned keeping track of prospects and how well they're playing, which sounds like good advice, but what do you what do you actually do to keep track of those prospects? Where do you look? Where's the information? So, I mean, you can just go to, you know, the minor league stats, run sorts for steals and home runs and just sort of see who's hot. And then I take a look at my draft prep sheets and say, okay, here are these guys that I was looking at as potential reserve uh, stashes that nobody drafted, how are they doing? Oh, look at that. So-and-so is hitting 350 in AAA, that type of thing. So those are the two main ways you sort of try to look at it. And then there's just the big name guys, right? 
guys you knew are going to come up at some point. Uh, Grayson Rodriguez is a little bit of a silly example because everybody would have drafted him anyway. But, you know, Taj Bradley, right? I didn't know Eflin was going to get hurt, but I'd be watching him closely to see when is he coming up because you knew it was going to happen. Yeah, there's a really good website that minor league baseball itself runs, uh, milb.com. And they, yeah, I was talking about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they do a they do a really good job of highlighting the players who are having good weeks or good months. So that's a good place to start if you're not already looking at milb.com. Certainly, that's some place to go. Uh, we talked earlier, Glenn, about Anthony Volpe and his uh, stolen base technique, which seems to be uh, the one bright spot of his year so far. He's got three bags, but otherwise. Four for his first 31, no extra base hits, just three runs scored, no RBIs. What's your take on what the Yankees need to do with Anthony Volpe, given his terrible start? Yeah, I think they just got to leave him alone. I mean, once you made the decision to take this 21-year-old kid who wasn't great in AAA and install him as your starting shortstop, you can't abandon that in 10 days. And look, the team is winning um, if they we're recording this on a Wednesday morning. If they win this afternoon in Cleveland, they'll have won the first three series. They're doing fine, despite some of the injuries they have. Volpe is exciting to watch on the base paths. He's fine at shortstop so far. I've seen no problem. So I think you just leave him alone and let him play. And if it's still a problem, you know, come June 1, maybe you have to do something about it. But you can't just say you're anointing him your shortstop and 10 days later say he's not your shortstop. And that's probably sound for the Yankees themselves because they're not looking at it the same way fantasy managers are. But as fantasy managers, what we're looking at is where's the base hits? Where's the home runs? Where's the production? And so far, not so much. How much rope would you give a guy like Volpe on a fantasy roster given the needs to get slot production? Yeah, it really depends on the construction of your team. If you're a team with Volpe and also Jorge Mateo or Miles Straw, maybe you don't need the speed as much. But if you're a team that's largely boppers and just a couple of rabbits, then, you know, Volpe's value is very substantial to your team because it doesn't matter at the end of the day how you get your stolen bases. It just matters that you get them. So if your other guys are scoring the runs and hitting the home runs and you need them for steals, fine. If you don't need them for the steals, then his batting average and lack of power is really hurting you. On the flip side, how do you manage expectations for a player who's off to a torrid start like Glaber Torres? We talked about him earlier. Also of the Yankees, a 409-552-727 slash line. He's got a couple of home runs and five stolen bases already. This seems to be exceeding what anybody could reasonably have expected from Glaber Torres. How do you manage that as a fantasy manager? I mean, this was one of the top prospects in the game for a long time. Like we said a little bit earlier in the show, uh, 26 years old with already 2,400 plate appearances. He, he's got a veteran's experience and a youthful body in a great park on a good team. None of this shocks me. The five steals I'm a little surprised by, but his success doesn't shock me. This is a hold and enjoy the ride. Under what circumstances and how far into the season before you would think about this as somebody who's overperforming or seems to be overperforming that you might start looking to trade him while the trading is hot? Yeah, I think that you can't really draw too many firm conclusions in 10 days, but I think when you start to get to mid-May, 
maybe even closer to Memorial Day, that's when I think you've come to your conclusion, this guy is over or underperforming, and then you try to make your moves, either acquire or sell based on that. When you were talking to Jeff Erickson just the other day on the Rotowire podcast, you said in the American League, a player that you were watching was Matt Veerling in Detroit. What were you watching for? I think if the only thing that he's missing right now, and it's not missing anymore because he's getting it, is opportunity. This is a guy who hits the ball incredibly hard, who is one of the faster guys in baseball. He makes contact. Um, All of it is there and potential maybe some positional eligibility too. And this is just a guy who had huge upside on a team where there was going to likely be opportunity and a very low draft capital cost. And I think I read this on, 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 you know, baseball HQ that Matt Buehling is no, I'm sorry. I didn't read it there as much as you guys have great information. DJ short put out a tweet the other day that there are three players in baseball that are in the 90th percentile or more in hard hit rate or exit velocity on the one hand and speed on the other. Mike Trout, Jose Siri, Matt Veerling. Matt Veerling's hitting 290 so far this year, which is a real help given the difficulty that most fantasy teams have in generating some batting average. Uh, one stolen base, two caught stealings already, which can't be reassuring, shall we say, on that front. No, that's not reassuring, but I, I don't think the Tigers are going to put up the stop sign. The Tigers need to produce runs any way they can, so I don't see them putting up the stop sign. It's not like he's getting caught stealing on the Yankees and the Blue Jays. And finally, Glenn, let's whip through some other hot or cold starts, and you can tell us if you're buying or selling. We'll do this in lieu of Boons and Baines. Uh, how about the hot start of Brian Reynolds in Pittsburgh? He's just been fantastic. Oh, I'm buying. I mean, the hard percentage, he hits the ball hard. He keeps hitting it harder. Um, you know, he's only 28 years old. He's hitting in the middle of the lineup and could very well end up on a team like the Yankees or the Dodgers for, for the second half of the season. I, I'm buying. Wander Franco for a long time was looked at, looked at as though he were a batting average only guy. And now all of a sudden this year he has four home runs in the early going, a 667 slugging, uh, 1021 OPS. It looks like everything's coming together for Wander Franco. And I haven't looked this up, but I wonder if he's one of those guys who's passed through the uh, plate appearance threshold for a guy at a relatively young age. Wander Franco, 1021 OPS. Are you buying or selling that? Totally buying this. He's only 22 years old and people were judging him when he did at 20 years old in the major leagues, which is just completely unfair. The Tampa Bay Rays know what they're doing and they locked him up early. And this is a kid with all the talent in the world. Uh, We rostered him for $25 in the labor AL league, AL only a mono league and caught a little bit of flack for it because, Oh, you know, he's not going to for power. He's not going to steal bases. I think he's going to more than return that value. I'm absolutely holding. And I just checked, he's got uh, 650 roughly plate appearances coming into this year. So he was a little bit below the threshold. But again, this is a guy who, and I can't emphasize this enough, I think this is really important. He was a top prospect and everybody knew it. And he was a bit disappointing in his first little while, as you said, as a 20-year-old. Then he gets a, a bunch of plate appearances and all of a sudden, I don't know, he's with a good organization that is really good at talent evaluation. I think all the signs are positive for Wander Franco for that reason. Uh, same for um, the Dodgers, James Outman. 
He's off to a very good start. A lot of competition for playing time in Los Angeles always, but uh, are you buying or selling James Altman so far? You know, I'm of two minds about James Altman. On the one hand, very good minor league record. He's not chasing out of the zone. He's taking his walks, things you like to see. But on the other hand, 64% contact rate this year is troubling, and he's pulling more than 50% of the ball. So to me, as much as I think I'd be fine keeping him on my team, if somebody is going to offer me today's James Outman value for what he's done in the first 10 days, I'll make the deal. I don't mind the pull hitter side of things. What really concerns me about Outman is uh, I think it's fly ball percent is under 40%, which really puts a cap on home run production. I know he's got three home runs so far this year, and that gaudy uh, 727 slugging percentage seems to augur well. But if a guy's not putting the ball in the air and instead he's uh, almost 50% ground balls, yeah, he can run a little bit and maybe get a few leg hits, but it seems like I'd way rather have home runs than a few extra leg hits. Yeah, no, look, I agree with you. Kudos to you if you drafted James Outman, and I have no problem holding him, but I do think there's a that he might be at his highest trade value right now. On the slow starting side, the hitter list for me begins with Nick Castellanos of Philadelphia. He's off to a fairly brutal start. Are you buying or selling on Nick Castellanos? Buying and buying big time. I mean, even in the last two days, he's five for his last nine. But one of the things that Rick Wolf and I talk about is players in their first year uh, in a new home with a big contract, uh, tend to underperform. He did that in Philadelphia last year. This is his second year there. He still hits the ball hard. It's a great park. They're only going to get better when Bryce Harper gets back. Uh, please, please, if, you, if you're going to sell Nick Castellano short, call me. <laughs> another guy who got off to a really terrible start, Brandon Belt of Toronto. Another guy switching parks, by the way, according to your smart system, a guy to avoid, and in this case, probably wisely so. A 60% strikeout rate through his first 25 plate appearances. Got a couple of hits the other night in Toronto's home opener, but what do you think of Brandon Belt? You buying or selling? Yeah, you know, I, I never bought, so that I don't have any shares to sell. Um, you know, I think it's unfortunate how often he's gotten hurt. Um, I think it's hard to imagine that he's going to get, even in the best of scenarios, full-time play. They're very deep there. Um, so to me, I'm not selling today. The value's too low if you rostered him, but he hits two or three home runs in a week. Sell when you can. In the preseason, Glenn, I saw a fair number of touts who were talking about Javi Baez as a potential sort of later round buy because there's nowhere to go but up from the disastrous 2022. Unfortunately, it looks like there was someplace other than up to go for Javi Baez. He's actually gotten worse. Uh, 111 batting average, I think he's uh, 4 for 40 or something like that, and uh, 291 OPS. That's not OBP, that's OPS. Are you buying or selling on Javi Baez? I'm actually buying. Um, look, he's got a 150 Babbitt, which is not going to hold. He's been unlucky. The guy hits the ball hard. He plays hard. He's got good speed. And if you look at last year, again, it's the classic maxim that Rick and I talk about all the time. First year and big contract, new home, didn't produce. But he started to do much better in the second half and even far better than that in September. Is Javi Baez going to hit 35 home runs and steal 35 bases in Detroit? No. Is he going to way outproduce what he did last year and what he's done so far? I think so. So again, 
give me a call if you're selling low on Javi Baez. Baez, though, uh, from my perspective, another guy who's having some trouble with the fly ball ratio. He's only 28% so far this year, 62% ground ball. I think that could change, and that would be something to watch for Javi Baez. If he starts putting the ball in the air, I think maybe the production might turn around a bit. Let's go over to pitchers. Fast-starting pitcher, how about Jeffrey Springs of Tampa? Yeah, I mean, he's just been absolutely great. You uh, I'm buying the talent, but you got to be a little careful. This is the guy who was a converted reliever sort of later in his career. So is he going to throw 200 innings? I think probably not. My strategy, if I was a Jeffrey Springs manager, would be to look to move him in, in around June or, or maybe July. I was thinking about that uh, transition from relieving to starting and I know that it puts a lot of people in a suspicious frame of mind as far as his durability, but then I hearken back to, and being a New York guy, you'll remember that Nolan Ryan, when he started in Major League Baseball, they brought him along as a reliever. He started off as kind of a swing man, a guy would come in in the middle innings, do some relieve, do some relieving, not much starting for the first few years, and it seemed to help him build up his stamina that he wasn't thrown out there at a very young age when injuries are more likely to happen because your body's not finished developing. He started as a starter, I think, at age 25 or so. And, well, the record speaks for itself. Is there any possibility that maybe a guy like Springs could benefit from the fact that he wasn't thrown into the starting uh, situation at too young an age? Well, I mean, look, it could be, and I haven't studied anything like that, but you're talking about a guy who hasn't been thrown into the starting realm until partway through his age 29 season, which is, you know, a whole different animal, I think. Um, look, I'm of the view that expecting a guy to throw 200 innings for the first time at age 30, you know, in his second season starting, is just asking a lot. And the Rays won the season, so are they really going to push him? So I don't think so. So I think in the second half, you can maximize your value by moving him uh, to a team that needs starting pitching. What would you set uh, Jeffrey Springs over under for regular season innings? 165. I think that's about right. I'd probably take a small under, but I think that's about right. Uh, the Rays also have uh, Drew Rasmussen off to a tremendous start. I don't think he's given up an earned run yet. And, uh, maybe only one hit or two hits. It's been fantastic so far His whip is 023. I know that. And he's got a couple of wins. Buying or selling Drew Rasmussen? I'm buying, actually. I mean, I went back and did some research on this, and he, he had only one start of his 27 starts last year. We walked more than two hitters. And I think in 22 of those 27 starts, it was two earned runs uh, or less. I mean, he was really excellent. And, there, you know, a couple of duds in there, but he's on a good team with a good pen uh, in a good park to pitch in. I'm buying. Yeah, I kind of missed Andrew Rasmussen this year. I, th I thought he was being overdrafted, but boy, oh boy, uh, in 2021 and 2022, he had a 284 earn run average and his whips were under 1.1 in both of those years, 108, 104. And not a huge strikeout guy, but not a uh, fairly useless strikeout guy, only 21% last year, but he's up to 36 this year with no walks. <laughs> that works. No doubt about it. Um, I mean, I liked him. I agree with you. Uh, he was on our list. I thought he went too high for what he was and what I could get with that draft capital. But 
anybody selling that selling now thinking they're selling high i'm buying yeah ditto a lot of expert disagreement coming into the season about Justin Steele of the Cubs. Here he is. He's 2-0 and with an 075 ERA. You're buying or selling on Justin Steele? I'm selling. I'm generally not a big fan of the guys who have only two pitches. And, you know, kudos to him for, for you know, producing. And there's no question he absolutely is. Um, he's getting ground balls. He's getting, you know, swings and misses. So all of that is excellent. But um, until you really develop that third pitch, it's really hard to succeed long-term. He's 58% fastball and 39% slider, which doesn't leave a lot of room for any third pitch, which means you better have both those pitches working every single time you take the hill or it's going to be a bad night. Pretty good year last year though. I mean, 24 starts, you had a 318 ERA, a lot of walks. That's the thing that worries me about guys with uh, a lot of walks is you know, it's, you're, you're always on that knife edge of having a really bad start. To, now let's go to the slow starting pitchers. And speaking of Chicago, I think we have to start with Lucas Giolito. He was another of those can't miss rebound candidates. He had all the right narratives going into the season. He's in great shape. He's feeling good. He lost a lot of weight. Look at him. He's as sharp as a tack. He's been in the pitching lab. Nine earned runs in his first two starts. Are you buying or selling at all on Lucas Giolito? Yeah, no, I'm buying if it, it here. I mean, it's too small a sample size. You're looking at a 450-something BABIP. You're looking at a, a strand rate of only of like 55%, which is incredibly low. And you take a look at that 9 ERA, which is gross. The Sierra is 4.2. 4.2 Sierra is average, but it certainly would be a big improvement. And if you can get Lucas Giolito as a, possibly even as a waiver claim, I think it's something that you have to consider for sure. Uh, Max Scherzer has already allowed four home runs in his first two starts, which is, I don't know how much ahead of his season, uh, I should say his career record, and a 51% hard hit ball percentage, usually around the mid-30s. Ground ball percentage also way down. Uh, Are you buying or selling on the great Max Scherzer? Well, look, I mean, it depends on what people are doing, but I don't have any shares uh, of Scherzer this year. You know, the age, the pitch clock, these things worried me at the price he was going for. Um, but am I worried that this bulldog of a pitcher on a good team in a good park has fallen apart? No, I'm not worried about that. And if somebody is selling really low, I'm in. It's just not a guy I targeted all year for the reasons I just said. Yeah, five shutout innings in his last start. Uh, his ERA for the year, I think, is around 440. I don't know. It seems like it's going to go down. He's just too good for that. Uh, and finally, Corey Kluber of Boston. This is another maybe worse situation for an established veteran. In his first two starts for the Red Sox this year, two straight losses, a 168 whip, and a 648 ERA. His FIP is two runs higher than that. 16% strikeouts, 13% walks. Uh, that's a 3% strikeout minus walk if you're keeping score at home. Are you buying or selling? Is there any hope for Corey Kluber, I guess is what I'm asking. Great pitcher, wonderful come out of nowhere career, won me a whole bunch of leagues, won Cy Young Awards. I mean, I just have a world of respect for Corey Kluber and, and used to love to watch him pitch. But I had no, I have no shares and, and didn't invest this year. He did well in Tampa, but he did well at home. At home, he was 371 ERA, 109 whip, did very well at home. On the road, 505 ERA, 1.36 whip, and now he's pitching in Boston. I just have no reason for optimism, just none. 
And I didn't mention this, but uh, Chris Sale, also in Boston, also an established veteran, Cy Young winner, very slow start. What about, uh, what do you think of Chris Sale? You know, the upside is so great that if he puts it together, that it's worth taking a flyer. If I have a team that has Carlos Rodon or, or Brandon Woodruff or Max Fried, and you need to take a, you know, a little bit of a gamble on a guy who has huge upside, it's worth doing. But this is a high-risk, high-reward play. I think his next start is against Tampa, which could be a, a really interesting contest to watch because uh, I think we got to start seeing something from Chris Sale other than this this level of performance for sure. Uh, Glenn, this has been terrific. Remind our listeners where they can keep up with your work. Yeah, sure. Thank you, Patrick. You hear us every Tuesday night, uh, 10 p.m. Eastern on Sirius XM Fantasy Sports Radio. Rick Wolf and myself on Colton and the Wolfman. And you can catch me on Twitter at GlennColton1. Glenn, thanks very much for helping us out. It was a pleasure as always. It was good to see you in New York. Had an interesting conversation about certain political legal matters, which are best left undiscussed in this forum. But it was very enjoyable to see you and uh, very enjoyable again to talk with you here. No, thank you, Patrick. Always great to see you. And uh, this is a great show. Listen to it every week. And uh, thank you for having me on. Glenn Colton co-hosts the Colton and the Wolfman Show Tuesday evenings at Sirius XM Fantasy Sports Radio. Coming up, we have our Baseball HQ commentaries, the Minor League Minute, Frequent Flyer, and my extra innings are on the way. But first, one last reminder of the resources available to you when you subscribe to BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In prospect coverage, the HQ scout team has reviewed recent call-ups in the Daily Call-Ups report, including Minnesota second baseman Edouard Julien, also covered in this week's frequent flyer commentary, Tampa right-hander Taj Bradley, who already got sent back to AAA, and Mets catcher Francisco Alvarez, and a whole bunch more. And don't miss the HQ prospect podcast, The Eyes Have It!, This week, co-hosts Chris Blessing and Brent Hershey discuss a few rookie performers over the first two weeks of the season, including James Outman, Logan Ohapi, and Ji-Hwan Bay. And Chris discusses his live looks at Boston Red Sox prospects, including Marcelo Meyer, Wickelman Gonzalez, and Chase Mydroth. I've mentioned a few of the resources on the site now at BaseballHQ.com, and they're really just the tip of the iceberg of all the great content and tools you'll find at BaseballHQ.com all the time. There's player performance validation in facts and flukes, news updates in playing time today, roster forecasting in playing time tomorrow, We have buyer's guides for hitters, starters, and relievers, fantasy market analysis in the market pulse, some long shot suggestions in the speculator column, team injury reports, and individual player injury analysis in the big hurt, gaming strategy analysis for rotisserie, points leagues, NFBC, and alternative formats, and groundbreaking fantasy baseball research. As well, there are tools like the player projections updated every day, updated depth charts, daily dashboards, pitcher matchups planners, bullpen indicators, batter consistency reports, complete pitcher PQS logs, potential surgers and faders, and other leading indicators for hitters and pitchers. Add it all up. You get expert content plus tools you can use to improve your teams and win your leagues. And they're why we call our site the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Baseball HQ Radio.
Hey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. PD here. Time now for our Baseball HQ commentaries. Coming up, we have the frequent flyer and my extra innings comment. And leading off, it's the Minor League Minute. And here with a look at Mets infielder Brett Beatty and Detroit cornerman Justin Henry Malloy is Baseball HQ scouting team member Rob Gordon. Now that the dust has settled on spring training in the World Baseball Classic and Shohei Otani once again looks like the best player on the planet, it's time to turn our attention to the start of the minor league baseball season. While the season has just gotten underway, it's never too early to start looking ahead. For owners and dynasty and deep keeper formats, most if not all of the top 100 prospects have already been scooped up. But often in shallow leagues, players who did not make an opening day roster get overlooked on draft day and are still available on the waiver wire. Already, we've seen the Cardinals call up Juan Yepes, the Brewers' Joey Weimer, the Mets' Francisco Alvarez, and the Dodgers replace the injured Ryan Pepio with Gavin Stone. Savvy fantasy owners should start paying attention to injuries and slow starts, as an early fab bid or waiver wire move could net a tidy profit. One player worth keeping an eye on is the Mets' third baseman, Brett Beatty. The 23-year-old Beatty had a monster season in 2022, slashing 315 with a 410 on base percentage and a 533 slugging percentage with 22 doubles and 19 home runs, earning a late-season call-up that was cut short by a torn ligament in his thumb that required surgery. He also had a strong spring training, hitting 325 and 40 at-bats, and showing improved confidence and range at third base. Not surprisingly, the Mets opted to start the year with veteran third baseman Eduardo Escobar, and Beatty gave the team a scare when he tweaked his surgically repaired thumb. But an MRI showed no structural damage, and he's had two huge games for AAA Syracuse since then, going 4 for 5 with two home runs on April 1st, and then 3 for 5 with a double and a home run on Tuesday, good for a 1351 OPS on the year. Meanwhile, Escobar is 4 for 36 to start the year, and with the Mets in win now mode, it would not be shocking to see the club give Beatty a look if Escobar doesn't heat up soon. Another player to keep an eye on in deep A only formats is the Tigers' Justin Henry Malloy. The 23-year-old Malloy came over in the offseason trade that sent Joe Jimenez to the Braves. Malloy can play both third base and the outfield, both areas of need for the rebuilding Tigers, and he brings something the team has lacked the past two seasons, namely plate discipline and an ability to get on base. Malloy broke out last year hitting 289 with a 408 on base percentage and a 455 slugging percentage with 17 home runs and 97 walks across three different levels. Malloy has continued to get on base to start the 2023 season and has a 543 on base percentage with 12 walks and 33 at bats for AAA Toledo. Malloy is never going to be a superstar, but the Tigers' offense continues to be anemic after a historically dreadful season in 2022, and Malloy could be the kind of high on base player they desperately need. Over the coming weeks, we'll track other players who could be in line for early season promotions, and don't forget to check out the daily call-up reports at BaseballHQ.com to get the edge on your fantasy competition. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Baseball HQ Minor League Analyst Rob Gordon. Baseball HQ scouting team member Rob Gordon has his Minor League Minute regularly here at Baseball HQ Radio. Now it's time for the Frequent Flyer, where we look at a player who might be available on your league's free agent list and who has the skills to contribute to the success of your teams. Here with a look at newly arrived Minnesota second baseman Edouard Julien is Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky. He has exquisite knowledge on what pitches he can hit hard, according to Baseball HQ's 2023 Minor League Baseball Analyst. To illustrate, the first inning of only his second major league game, 23-year-old Minnesota Twins rookie second baseman, Edouard Julian, leading off for the Twins, 
drove a 96-mile-per-hour Johnny Brito fastball all the way to the wall for a long single with a 104-mile-per-hour exit velocity in the Bronx on April 13th. Going back to that first inning at Yankee Stadium on April 13th, the left-handed hitting Julian followed up his first major league hit, one that almost left the park, with one that indeed left the park, depositing a 91-mile-per-hour Colton Brewer cutter into the opposite field seats, becoming only the fourth hitter since 1974 to collect his first career hit and his first career home run in the same inning, per Opta stats as quoted by MLB.com. Not bad. However, Baseball HQ's Chris Blessing in his April 6th Miners column on BaseballHQ.com pointed out that scouts who saw Julian play in AA were concerned that Julian let too many hittable pitches go by. That's why 23-year-old Minnesota Twins rookie second baseman Edouard Julian, like all of our frequent flyers, should be considered to be a long shot, who may be worth a flyer if he is still available in your league. Even so, the hit tool has never been in question with Julian, according to Chris Blessing, where Julian's low whiff rate, 22%, and his low in-zone miss rate, 17%, portends to translate well to a higher OBP at the major league level. Indeed, both Julian's 441 on-base percentage at AA Wichita in 2022 and his 437 career OBP in the Miners are well above our 340 OBP benchmark at BaseballHQ.com used to identify baseball's elite hitters, and perhaps further demonstrating Julian's exquisite knowledge at the plate. In fact, according to MLB.com, no one in the Miners has walked more than Julian has over the previous two seasons combined. So he could get on base, but can Julian get past first base? Well, his 17 home runs and 19 steals fused with a 300 batting average in 113 minor league contests in 2022 represents a pretty solid power-speed combination. Wow. Maybe that's why Carlos Correa, as quoted by the Athletics' Eric Gleeman on March 7th, said, My God, the kid can hit, man! Combined Carlos Correa's quote with Julian's exquisite hitting knowledge, saved by Baseball HQ's 2023 minor league baseball analyst, page 47, and perhaps 23-year-old Minnesota Twins second baseman, Edouard Julian could flip the script in 2023 as our frequent flyer for this week. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Alex Becky at BaseballHQ.com. Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky has his frequent flyer comment here on Baseball HQ Radio every week. Now it's time for Extra Innings, my weekly comment on baseball and fantasy baseball. And this week, I want to talk about my first trivia contest of the season, about 30-30 guys. You see, I was reading the other day about 30-30 players. These are guys who have hit 30 homers and stolen 30 bases in a single season. Or, in fact, for some of them, several different seasons. Well, that got me kind of curious, and so I started looking through Baseball References' Stathead site for all the 30-30 guys in Major League history. And that, in turn, led me to dig out some interesting nuggets about the 30-30 club. So, here's a quick trivia contest, or baseball acumen challenge, if you want to doll it up a bit. Hey, honey, I got five out of five on the prestigious Baseball HQ Radio Baseball Acumen Challenge. So now can I get that Harley I've been looking at? Now, you can cheat if you want to and look up all the answers yourself, if you have a Stathead subscription, or you can just have a little fun, just guess wildly, maybe challenge your baseball acumen a little bit. So if you're ready, here goes. We'll start off with the basics. How many 30-30 seasons have there been in Major League Baseball history? 
Well, there have been 65 30-30 seasons, but how many different 30-30 players have there been? The 65 30-30 seasons have been amassed by 43 different players. Who was the earliest? The earliest player to get a 30-30 season was Ken Williams back in 1922. 39 home runs and 37 stolen bases for the old St. Louis Browns, now the Baltimore Orioles. Who was the most recent player to have a 30-30 season? Cedric Mullins in 2021 had exactly 30 home runs and exactly 30 stolen bases. Of course, he did that for the Baltimore Orioles who used to be the St. Louis Browns. Here's an interesting one. Which player had a 30-30 season in the fewest games? In 1987, Cincinnati's Eric Davis amassed 37 homers and 50 stolen bases in 129 games played. Which of the 30-30 members had the most home runs in his 30-30 season? Does it help if I give you a hint? He's a Canadian guy and he's an MVP. Well, if you said Justin Morneau, no, you're wrong. If you said Joey Votto, no, you're wrong. It was Larry Walker who started his career in Montreal, but in 1997 was playing for the Colorado Rockies when he launched 49 home runs to go with his 33 stolen bases and amass a truly excellent year, including that MVP. Now, which 30-30 guy had the most stolen bases in his historic season? In 1990, Barry Bonds, then of the Pittsburgh Pirates, had 52 stolen bases to go with his 33 home runs for his 30-30 season. And finally, which two players have a couple of things in common, one of them being they've tied for the most 30-30 seasons with five apiece? Well, the other thing they had in common is their father and son, Bobby Bonds had five 30-30s in 1969, 73, 75, 77, and 78, and Barry Bonds had five in 1990, 92, 95, 96, and 97. And that's our first trivia contest for the year. If you did really well, go get yourself that Harley. You deserve it. For BaseballHQ.com, I'm Patrick Davitt, and I have my extra innings commentary here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, April the 14th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 12 of the 2023 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our guest expert for this Friday full edition, Glenn Colton, co-host of the Colton and the Wolfman Show on Tuesday nights on Sirius XM Fantasy Sports Radio and replayable on demand through the Sirius XM website or the Sirius XM app. Glenn is a very smart, very informed guest a successful fantasy manager in his own right and with his partner Rick Wolf, and he's always an engaging guy to have a conversation with. I also want to thank our regular commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our Market Watch news analyst was Chris Olson. Our Minor League Minute commentator was Baseball HQ scouting team member Rob Gordon. And our frequent flyer commentator was Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky. I'm Patrick Davitt. 
your extra innings commentator and the host of Baseball HQ Radio. I sure hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Also, remember you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook and on our Twitter feed at BaseballHQ. You can also follow my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt, where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. Please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio. Take a second to go to Apple Podcasts, Google Pods, Pocket Cast, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you catch your pods, and leave Baseball HQ Radio a good review and a rating. It does help us find new listeners, and that helps us keep the podcast going. If your pod getter of choice doesn't find Baseball HQ Radio, let us know about that or anything else on your mind by emailing us at bhqradio, all one word, at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again next Friday with another Friday full edition featuring Ariel Cohen from the ATC Player Projection and Valuation Systems. And in the weeks ahead, we'll have top-notch guest experts including Tim McLeod from Prospects 360 and our go-to guy for Japanese and Korean baseball, Derek Carty from the Bat and the Bat X Projection Systems, and Paul Sporer from Fangraphs and the Sleeper and the Bust podcast. Plus, we'll have all the usual great stuff our news analysis, and our Baseball HQ commentaries. That's Ariel Cohen on next Friday's full edition of the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. We'll talk with you again next Friday, and for now, so long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com, where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.